got this, man. We got this by the ass. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If he had a Mohawk, he could go in. Smells like they're cooking a goddamn cat over there. Because you say I for me. The man goes broke, he can't handle it. The man is on tilt. You want to hear any more? Two dogs. Lick it up, baby. Lick it up. Welcome to Pure Cinema, the closing episode of season two. We made it. We made it. That's crazy. How are you feeling about it? Oh, man, it was, uh, I actually, this season's been long, because we, we changed our schedule to being, yeah. like, bi-weekly, so it's lasted longer. Uh, I, I, you know, I love every episode we do. It's just, uh, as you know, as you know, it's gotten harder this uh, second half, because I took on a new gig, and post-summer, we were, like, uh, it was it, it was tougher, but that's it, not the episode, so I always enjoy it. Do you have uh, any particular favorites? I, we asked the question on Twitter, and it was actually... It was nice, to be honest, because one of the problems, not problems, but me and you talk about it uh, off air a lot, is like our favorite favorite episodes or favorite topics sometimes are maybe more obscure and tend to be the less, less listened to episodes. And that's always a bit of a bummer, but it was cool to see that a lot of my favorites were the ones that were other people's favorites on Twitter. Yeah, no, I mean, the Life Cycle episode and the Silent Movies episode came up a few times, and that's really cool because we just were really we really dug doing those episodes and um it was one of those things where we hoped people would be into it but it the numbers didn't necessarily show that but it's totally cool that you know it, the people that it did hear it seemed to respond well to those episodes so that's great and i don't think of our show as because we were unlike film spotting and a few other sh- modern shows we're kind of like more like 80s all over in the sense that we're not it's all evergreen and so it's like if we put out that silent film episode and it has less downloads than say another episode we do it's like you know but two five years later someone can still discover that episode and it's like kind of still a perfect capsule whereas because we're not discussing many new films and uh we're not just reviewing what's come out so i i think that's kind of cool about the show and uh, I like that a lot of people were uh, kind of thought it was quite a thought provoking one, the life cycle one. It seems like a lot of people really dug into it, yeah. into their own worlds. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do with your friends, your your film loving friends, to set them up. Because I, I mean, I, I said it on the episode, but full credit to you for coming up with that idea, which I thought was great, and which we almost did in the first season because I thought it was so great. But it's been interesting to hear people say that things like. I asked my friends to do their life cycle list and it's cool because it's thinking about movies in a different way, not just genre based. Anyway, that's sometimes the kind of stuff we like to do and it's a fun exercise for people like us and our listeners to just sort of exercise that movie mind mem- sort of muscle, you know, to just figure things out and put things together in a different way and how th- yeah. thematically how they work. And, and for, yeah, these films and these lists are so deeply personal to people. I, that's what I still love about movies. It's like people really internalize it and take it really seriously just the way we do. You know, they they really dig in. It's not, it's not like um, just putting a poster on your wall so people see it and think you're cool. It, like, it does go somewhere deep to how you view yourself, uh, what you're willing to put out there, um, even if it's just on Twitter or something. Uh, the you know think about this man how far away does the episode summer feel now crazy summer and high school feel like they were recorded like a year and a half ago 
And that's why I think I didn't see as many comments about them because they probably feel so far away because the yeah. high school episode was just so much fun. That and the uh, bio ones with Larry Karaszewski, you know, getting to talk to those two uh, geniuses was uh, a blast. So oh, man. But they do feel like they're from, <laughs> from a few months ago. Yeah, definitely. The, the, those are so much fun. And I, and I remember definitely the high school episode got some attention when it came out. If you haven't heard that episode, definitely go back and listen to it as um, Dan Waters is one of the funniest humans ever. And yes, so I'm so- recently at a urinal uh, <laughs> at the Egyptian, and, he's, and I'm not even kidding. He made me laugh. He's- like I went up to a urinal, started pissing, and he made some comment about, I think we had just seen Brawl and Cell Block 99, and he made me laugh at a urinal. If you can make me laugh at a urinal, you're a funny <laughs> human being. Yeah, and he's not, I've said it before, but he's not one of those always-on kind of guys, and I just, I'm in awe of that dude. So anyway. Yeah, that was a good one. So we closed, for those that remember, we closed out our first season talking about Danny Perry's, I mean, Danny Perry is woven throughout this whole show. He's like part of the DNA of the show, as we've said. Yeah. But we closed out season one and we decided the first season that we were going to close out every season using one of Danny's books as a jumping off point for the episodes. So we did Cult Movies 1 and we're doing Cult Movies 2 on this episode, but what's neat about this one is that in the interim, we actually got to talk to Danny Perry himself. We went to New York, which we talked about on the show, and we interviewed Danny for my documentary, but we really, part of it was just to record for the, this episode. So it's exciting you'll get to hear that interview, that talk that we had with him, which was, you know, really neat. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is so weird, wasn't it? Like, we're in New York to do, to do this. I don't know, it's, it feels like it crosses a weird line. When you're interviewing him for the documentary, that feels like a normal thing because you're interviewing someone you're not sharing something i feel like an interview is a is largely a you're just collecting the thing of them you're not really part of it even though you're part of it you know what i mean so watching you interview them i know you're not planning on making yourself a big part of that whereas when we do then when we set up to record the podcast with them it's such a different dynamic and suddenly we're talking to like one of our idols yeah (laughs) about movies kind of on the same level and that's a weird a weird experience but i thought it was really cool um and that's gonna be a lot of fun and and we kind of you know well we were kind of talking to him briefly specifically about cult movies too but what i liked about the conversation is he kind of really showed his love of horror films you know none of this was like provoked he just he kind of pushed it to where he was interested in talking about and the shared love of say like val luden and uh, a lot of leopard man talk so yeah it's 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 a cool conversation and uh you know just kind of neat for the legacy of the show that we got to do that i think yeah it's a big deal to me and um and, and he's just as much as he's sort of humble about it and and starts off the interview talking about how he couldn't write these books anymore we were you know floored by just his off the cuff you know knowledge if he's if he's quote unquote not in shape as far as movie scholarship is right now he's <laughs> I don't know. He's still quite impressive, to say the least. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure he could be if he wanted to. I'm sure it's just he's got, yeah, so many other things to do. But he definitely is keeping up with horror. So that was, I that that was, was a real. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, you'll you'll hear all that. Um, so some of the things uh, we, we'll just briefly talk about a couple of the titles that we already discussed in the season or, or last season that are in this book. I've got, um, we talked about American Friend with the, in the back in the Hitchcock episode. Great movie. Uh, Cutter's Way came up this season in the Twilight Time episode. The Man Who Fell to Earth came up uh, back in Space Invaders. That's episode two, I believe, of first season. 
Uh, Marnie uh, came up, obviously, in the Hitchcock episode. And Basket Case, which was definitely going to be on my list this time, came up in our triple features from Jackson. Um, and you had one more, right? I had two more, but now I'm forgetting oh. which episodes uh, they Big were. Heat? Yeah, Big Heat was in Revenge, I think. No. Yeah, or no, Noir. No, 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 Noir. Noir, Noir. Neo-Noir, yeah. maybe? Yeah, and then um, Nightmare Alley was another one that I pulled, I thought, for Noir, but maybe it was something else. Yeah, that I'm makes losing sense. my mind I'm, is going. But anyway, those are all in this book. It just shows what an incredible book it is that we couldn't stay away until the last... You know, there were some that I was holding on to for this episode, but there was just... Some of the, so many of these movies are favorites that it's hard to um, not let a few slip out. How did this, because uh, I didn't discover, I mean, we've talked at length about book one and our, you know, off record and on last season. Uh, cult Movies 2 didn't come into my, because because the first book isn't called Cult Movies 1. Yeah. It's just Cult Movies. So when I discovered it, I didn't look for more because I didn't think they existed for years. So, I mean, Cult Movies was like my Bible, this pre-internet. Uh, so it wasn't until a lot later that I knew about Occult Movies 2 and then 3. And 3 I've read the least, so I'm actually kind of excited to go into that one uh, next season. But uh, how did yeah? what was your relationship to Occult Movies 2? Did you s- discover it at the same time? Yeah, I th- I'm trying... Well, okay, let's see if I remember this right. Well, I'm, I found all three books at the University of Wisconsin Library. I've said this before, and that's where Danny went to school, which I thought was neat. But I'm try- I feel like I maybe remember that I was tipped off to the fact that there was more than one book because... Cult Movies 1 and Cult Movies 3 were next to each other, but 2 mm. wasn't there. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. And somebody had checked it out maybe or something. I can't remember. But soon after I discovered the first one, I knew the existence of the other two. So I made sure to go through all of them. And yeah, that's part of the reason it, it hit me so hard because, I mean, one book al- alone is enough to really take the top of your head off. But when you see all three at once, I mean, it's just crazy how much incredible stuff it's it's mind-numbing you know i mean so well and this is the one where i really love the mixture of like a uh, culture clash and, and i think i mentioned it maybe when we're t- when basket case came up yeah. but just that yeah, inclusion of basket case in here the like just some huge you know huge mega movies uh the addition of um one that's on neither of our lists um uh which herschel gordon lewis blood feast is in here right i think so uh, yeah, just stuff like that mixed with Wells movies, it, it's it's the great leveler. And, and I'm not the first person to say this. Even in some of the interviews we did in New York uh, for your doc, you know, I noticed people really respond to that. That this idea of a leveling of cinema, uh, that the high end culture is as important as what's perceived as low end, because within those, there's just these you know moments that, of something that you've never seen before you know and i think uh that's where this cult part kind of comes in where it levels them because it could mean a studio movie or you know uh indie that fell through the cracks or undiscovered gem it can mean like so many different things yeah I, and i i've always sort of said it. i just love that he always seems to decry that it's okay to love both things and it's in fact i don't know for me i just feel like you're you're more well-rounded if you allow more in as mm. far as this goes but maybe that's being i don't know taking it too far but um yeah i, I like I just, that he also limits it to 50 i, I yeah. actually think that's a pretty good number it's perfect for a book like this yeah it's perfect yeah so um yeah i love this one uh i was surprised i forget which ones are in which book now because they all start yeah, to run together totally. but in looking at this list i'm like wow so many favorites you know it was kind of hard to pick my, I swapped at least three movies in and out of my list and not because the, they fell out of favor, but just because I was trying to balance the list and I don't even know if I did a good job ultimately, but it was just, there was too many. It was a, an embarrassment of riches. 
Yeah. Um, so we are going to be bringing up uh, five each of movies that we uh, probably love. To be honest, I, when I looked at my five, I was like, man, these would have probably at least three or four of these would have been number ones on lists of regular episodes we would do. That's how like they're really cherished favorites. And then one new discovery each continuing that from last season where we uh, both try to see at least one movie we hadn't seen before from this list, which is probably my favorite part of doing these things. Um, we're going to be hitting those after we uh, hear from the man himself on our time in New York with Danny Perry. Go ahead and say something, Danny. Well, what I was going to say, you know, I told you yesterday I could probably not write these books anymore. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons is I don't have movies in my head anymore uh, as references. I'd always just have, anytime I'd see a movie, I'd start thinking about other films. And I don't necessarily do that anymore. Or I don't have that uh, expertise as somebody who knows every film ever made anymore i don't i don't know you i don't have that you impressed us pretty well yesterday (laughs) after saying all that i was really kind of i I was floored by how much you were talking about val luton which was awesome i i love that i love and staying up to date with modern horror you seem like you're yeah you you had seen that movie here alone and Ellerick hadn't even heard yeah i just looked it up after i talked to you and i was like oh that looks good yeah and you have uh, okay and you you have to watch it yeah that looks good so yeah we added that both of us to our you'll like that you'll like that one once it's not great, it but it's different. Uh, when, what what uh, did award? What award did it win? Some audience award. It's audience award at Tribeca Film Festival, which is as I said, I I saw it. Well, I probably saw it at a critic screening, so it was like two or three. I mean, when I said there were two or three people, only two or three critics. So I didn't go to any the evening performances. So maybe they fill sold out and uh, people loved it. Yeah, I just we were marveling at the fact that you're such a big Bone Tomahawk fan, and I love Bone Tomahawk. Well, just that that has a in, very intense scene in it that I feel like some viewers might be turned off by, but clearly horror is not out of your wheelhouse anymore. No, uh, are we on? Metal? Yeah, we're, ro- we're oh, recording. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Hi, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a we'll do a proper <laughs> intro, but sometimes we just do a pre-roll chat and then we'll we'll keep it in, you know, or whatever. But well, I I used to pride myself on knowing horror movies. Uh, uh, I have different different genres. I see films of every genre, and I appreciate films of every genre. But if, if I have strengths, it's probably westerns and horror horror movies, horror science fiction movies, because I started watching them, when, including them, <laughs> uh, when I was uh, just three or four or five years old. I was already into that stu- in, into them, and just watched all the all of them. So. Over the years, over the last few years, I realized that I'm falling way behind. I'd meet people who uh, who would have seen, they would list 10 movies. Have you seen this? No. Have you seen this? No. Have you seen this? No. <laughs> so, and, and all these uh, horror festivals that are springing up all over the, the country, these underground um, films. Uh, underground festivals for horror films and science fiction films, and I, uh, my cult movie books went became ebooks a couple of years ago, and one of them was um, uh, horror, and there was another science fiction and midnight movies, and I'm thinking, how do we market this? Who who is the audience? So, one of the things I did was. Uh, 
I, I became Facebook friends with about a thousand people I don't know, and I <laughs> good I, start. <laughs> I, who I found, uh, who are a lot of them are, are actors and actresses in horror, horror films that never play in theaters, and also people who write for uh, fanzines and, and whatever. And uh, there are a lot of these people I regret becoming friends <laughs> with. <laughs> but uh, but I found a whole world that, out there. And all these films being made, I never heard of. They're going straight to video. And just in the last year, I, because I do, I get, I order so many books from Amazon because I read a lot. I did the Amazon where, where I can watch uh, the streaming service. So that had a lot of horror films I never heard of. And then I got net, finally got Netflix. And which also has a lot of horror films. Uh, so what I've been doing during a very hectic year of a lot of work is relax at night. After I finish my work, about you know twelve thirty at night, I'll go and on Netflix or Amazon and find a horror movie that I never heard of. And there are many of them, and they they're they change all the titles all the time. And I try to watch one that's probably an hour and 22 <laughs> minutes long yeah the magic <laughs> it spot ends at 12 30 when i <laughs> want to get ready for bed and i i quickly try to look up on rotten tomatoes or something to see if anybody likes these these movies and it actually doesn't affect me entirely so if somebody if nobody likes the movie I might be curious about it. Really? Yeah, still. So you don't look but, at but, but they've generally been right in those cases. When nobody likes the movie, I generally, generally won't like it. But I have discovered a few uh, films. And I'm going to get the title wrong because I never know. All these titles are inter- interchangeable, <laughs> too. But the guy who did Bone Tomahawk had done S. Craig uh, Zeller, yeah. Yeah, uh, which I really like and really impressed with but he did a, a film something like dark is the night or dark comes the night uh-huh. i haven't seen that one. um who's the guy in uh, the strain the not not the the lead not Cory oh, Stoll, but the uh, second the polish uh sounding one or no 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 the guy who plays the exterminator who uh the big guy yeah well anyway he's he's the star of this film and it's uh, takes place i think in a southern mining town and um, to me, the really interesting part about it is he's, he's having uh, trouble with his wife and, and his son. And he wants to get a, have a family conversation. They have it in a little diner. And I live out in uh, Sag Harbor, Long Island, and which is right next to Bridgehampton. And one of our favorite haunts is a place called the Candy Kitchen. And we have a favorite waitress there. And all of a sudden, he in this southern mi- uh, logging town, or Midwest logging town, or even northwest, but not Long Island, walks into the candy kitchen <laughs> and has a conver- has a conversation there. And then our waitress walks by. Oh, nice. And <laughs> so I, I so I actually like that movie. I saw, I know which one yeah, you're talking so about. It's, it's, it's a, well made. It, yeah, and it's it's he made it before Bone Tomahawk, yeah. and you can really see the talent there. Yeah. And, and it it is exciting finding people. Uh, you know who make horror movies because that's the easiest way to break into to general movies and to see the this talent that's there and they could stay in horror movies or they could expand but we that, that's where we find some talent yeah it shows your passion for 
film. I mean, I know it's changed uh, after the books, but clearly, if you're still looking up these movies for your own interest and because you yeah. want to discover them, even if you're not sharing that with the masses necessarily, I think that's pretty great. Well, I, I have a real affection for horror movies and science fiction films because they were so much part of my childhood. Mm. It's just like the baseball players, as maybe people know, I also write about sports, but baseball filled up my childhood and movies particularly the horror and science fiction and the westerns uh, they, they really filled up my childhood and that that's one of the real good parts of my childhood mm. so i have an appreciation and i've always defended horror films and defended science fiction films in, in the era when adults uh, scoffed at them you know particularly mainstream critics so well, there's thought- always gems out there invasion of the body snatchers Don Siegel's a great movie, you know, doesn't matter what genre it's in, and it has so many levels to it. And Them, which is one of my real, real favorites, is the uh, same thing with that one. You can see it over and over, and even the film The Host, the Korean film yeah. The Host, really, really influenced by Them. Yeah, so, I love Them. Them is one of my favorites. I showed that to my daughter, yeah. like six months ago and she got a big kick out of it so so powerful and uh james whitmore giving up his life to save these kids in a <laughs> cave you know uh, wow what a hero for me as a kid yeah and that sound the sound oh, the sound it. of the uh, the ants and it's just one of those and, yeah, perfect and the little girl horror. walking down the oh street at the beginning them them yeah it's still scared, still creepy and scared. yeah and, i love and, it and great and the and i as i as i told you in the past at the time one of the one of the most popular TV shows, along with I Love Lucy, was Dragnet, Jack Webb series. And he and his partner at the time, Ben Alexander, would go around to solving crimes. And they would interview different witnesses. And they'd all be kooky characters. And this is very much like them. They, they hmm. took it took it from dragnet and it's uh, such a little detective a detective show as well yeah. one thing really i was well curious made. about was because we were born into the <clears throat> video generation so we yeah. were we already arrived and our and your book already existed for instance but we were the which, which is one of the reasons my book uh, had popularity it right, came exactly at the right time where people could actually find it exactly find the, the right films, time yeah. where people were looking for films to see and say well is there a list anywhere or and anybody written about current films that are developing cults or or should be seen by every film fanatic in the world is there something i can see and they'll ask the guy behind the counter and they'll say well check out the guide for the film fanatic or these cult movie books and they use it as a checklist but it came out at exactly the right time for that yeah that's interesting we were so we were born and seeing a lot of violence in films already obviously chainsaw massacre and uh creep show or any anything that we saw at say the age of 10 or so when you were seeing something like uh, when you were seeing something like them, did you, li- like, living through that gradual increase in violence, I can't really imagine what that must have been like to go from watching movies where everything was restrained. We talked about, you know, yesterday we were talking about Val Luton and, Le- uh, you know, the Death and Leopard Man and how you're, not, you're seeing things behind the closed door and you're just hearing the screams or the haunting, the off-screen violence of sound. What was it like? The hunting, hunting came a little later. That's yeah, that's it's in yeah, like 1964. Yeah. But what was it like seeing, say, Psycho or Ch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Or, or, or you're the first film you saw that had that real screen violence. Was it shocking to be in that space? Because I just can't imagine because we had such different upbringings in that way. Well, it always is. I mean, mm. one of the reasons Psycho was such a, such a controversial film, and, and actually 
part of the reason it has a cult is a lot of film critics hated it because mm. of the violence. They thought eh, not just the strange subject matter with uh, somebody dressing up like his mother and becoming <laughs> his mother and killing people, which is kind of uh, broke a lot of rules at the time. But there had never been anything like it. And I mm. say it had never been anything like it. There had been a couple of things. Diabolique was a really big powerful influence. I, th- I think uh, Hitchcock and Clouseau, they knew each other, or they knew each other's work, and they, they borrowed from each other. But the scene where uh, one of the, this, the woman climbs out of a bathtub who's supposed yeah. to be dead, and the eyes are really weird, and gets to give uh, the other, the, the rival woman, a heart attack. That was a classic moment in history. Uh, the Val Luton Leopard Man is is the really the film that with the, it's off screen violence, but there's a creepiness and there's a terror to that film that we said this is different than the others, but not a lot of people saw Le- the Leopard Man, so it, I don't think it, it didn't have a big impact. There are three women who are killed by one one is killed by a leopard and two were killed by somebody dressed up like a leopard. <laughs> but the, the, the scenes are really, were, were really scary at the time and, and I think crossed lines. But when the Universal Horror Films came out in the, uh, on television in the 19, uh, around 1958, might have been 57, but I think it was 58, we got to see what people saw in the 1930s when they went to see uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and then Dracula's daughter and the Invisible Man and Frankenstein meets the Wolf Man and all the all, all the sequels to the Franken to Frank Bride of Frankenstein and, and House of Frankenstein and all those and at the time even as a kid I would say god I don't understand how people were scared by this you know I, I mean the people were really terrified when Frankenstein appeared in 1931 you know but as a kid I was terrified myself mm. uh, I, I, I couldn't figure out why adults were terrified but I I couldn't sleep after any of these movies because that's you know the first time I saw the Wolfman. That that's the, I was always scared of werewolves. I've, I've always been a werewolf fan. Mm. The, the Wolf the Wolfman, which is 1941, I think, um, with Lon Chaney Jr. That's always been the movie that really scared me. But uh, that, for a lot of people in '58, just opened up the world of being scared. And we, we were so, but we were scared by these monsters that really weren't scary, which is kind of an odd thing. Psycho took us to a completely different level. I, 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 just, I can't express how, how terrified people were. And, and in, in truth, people would say, I, after the shower scene in Psycho, I would, I would never, you know, in a motel, I would never take a shower again. And they were being truthful. They were being honest. I still look out the, <laughs> the shower when I'm in a in a place that I'm not familiar with. It's, mm. It had such an impression, the, the shot from behind the shower curtain of a figure walking right towards you, but you can't make out what it is. It's just such a brilliant move. And, and the other 
uh, the Martin Balson walking up the stairs and a door opening and you expect him to get to the top of the stairs and then take a turn and walk toward that door where you know somebody's behind it except Hitchcock surprised you by having that person charge out of the room with a knife up and start slashing away and and not only that this old old woman by the time Martin Balson hits the bottom step she's right on top of him how does an old woman do this we're wondering <laughs> how did this happen but Anyway, I would show Psycho. I mean, I told people to see Psycho ever since 1960 when I was, as I've told you, I, I literally looked underneath the seat in front of me to see if there was enough room for me to crawl underneath. <laughs> it was, I was an 11-year-old kid. I definitely should not have been allowed to see this movie. But that was a big breakthrough. The William Castle Homicidal, which came mm. out at almost exactly the same time and had elements of Psycho in it. Maybe he saw the script or something. <laughs> but, you know, Robert Block had written uh, the, the novel prior to this. And um, becoming friends with Robert Block years later was, was, was great because he wrote, he wrote for a bunch of my books. The uh, Night of the Living Dead oh, came up in 1968. And that was another one. That was the next move. That was when you were watching creatures eat the innards of, of their victims. And George Romero, obviously in that film, was borrowed from Psycho, borrowed from The Birds, which was another uh, influential horror film from 1963, the Hitchcock film. So he did those back-to-back an A, mainstream director making horror movies, legitimizing them for the adult audience. So that was a big, big thing. Uh, I think Night of the Living Dead was, in 68, was discovered by younger people and it eventually became a midnight movie, but it was the young people, not, not necessarily teenagers, but partly teenagers, but college-age people really, really were taken by Night of the Living Dead. So this zombies had always been portrayed as, as comatose creatures and going back to a white zombie, the Bela Lugosi movie in the 30s, and then I Walk with the Zombie, the Val Luton, Jacques Turner movie from 1942, but uh, all of a sudden zombies were attacking you, and it became the, it's still the film that we, uh, every zombie filmmaker, television zombie maker goes back to as the reference point. This is this is the film. It, it broke new ground, and it also, like Psycho, it allowed its main characters to be killed off. And this is a new thing that we were experiencing in horror films that we could identify with the lead characters, but uh-oh, we could get killed off, which was the big startling thing in Psycho when Janet Lee, the star of the film, gets killed. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. You probably don't know this. Don't worry, they've all seen the Gus Van Sant version. That's it. Shot by, sh- it's amazing. It's Strange. shot by shot, and it's not as good. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> well, he added a couple it's, bad it's, shots. It's, <laughs> it's, how? It, it's, yeah. it, it's interesting how that, how that works and how it feels slow. Yeah. Whereas Hitchcock's never feels slow and precise. It's funny. It's and yeah. Well, that film, the Gus Van Zandt. I guess you know, just thinking about it, Hitchcock's just amazing. Is he puts you in the camera? Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's a guiltiness that you have as being part of watching this. And I feel that with Gus Van Sant. No. I felt that he's doing an exercise making a movie. It's probably too restrained for Van Sant. He, no. He's much more probably, he probably could push a lot more perverted than he did. You know? But I wonder I wonder if he, if he had the same mindset as Hitchcock. Mm. I mean, Hitchcock really had a 
perverse right. mind. Uh, Gus Van Sant appreciated the movie, but did he did he have that thing in his head that would come out on the screen? Would it yeah. just jump out? I don't think so. But yeah. also, nobody can be Janet Leigh. She <laughs> was, yeah, it was wonderful. What perfect casting. But anyway, uh, Night of the Living Dead was really a breakthrough film, and uh, it became a, a film people rallied around. When I was at University of Wisconsin, we'd heard about this Night of the Living Dead. Somebody, uh, maybe it was a critic, had discovered it on 42nd Street in Times Square, and then we all had to see it, which is what happens with cult movies. And we saw it, and we brought back the word that, hey, this is actually good. This is actually good and smart, a smart film, a well-directed, characters are interesting, the different little twists and turns are, are exciting. Uh, a bit and more l- political, even I guess. A l- right. And even a, even a little politics, yeah. yeah. And where, I guess, is the first, it's not the first of the horror films and science fiction films, but is one of those films where the police are not necessarily the good guys or the smart guys. Or the authorities aren't the good guys, and they're not going to protect yeah. you. They'll just indiscriminately kill you, which is what happens at, at the end. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, was one of the most because the way it shot Toby Hooper shot it so authentically and with a grainy film Mm. almost like a documentary story and it's kind of you never really think of it in terms of all the found footage films later but you could make that film as a found footage film if if you really think Mm -hmm. about it and for me it was actually too uncomfortable I, I, um, I wrote about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and kind of like how real it was and then there it did have a perverse sense of humor and it was just a really well made but there's this, there is something sick about that movie <laughs> uh, which is the appeal of it yeah. and I can appreciate why so many people liked it and it also crossed boundaries like the way that these people are killed with uh, you know, with the sledgehammers and, and, of course, a chainsaw. But the, the scenes of torture always bother me. And just the, the young woman sitting at the table with this, uh, this a kind word, is a disgusting family, <laughs> and having the grandfather try to kill her, but he's not strong enough to, it just it goes on and on, and her jumping through a window, and I think she really had to do that, and that she actually cut herself, yeah. you know, crawling across on her hands and knees crawling across the dirt and, and little stones and pebbles and just getting in bad shape. But we could feel that. And it's basically, how do you respond to that? But I do like Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a... As a I, I think it's a good film, and I understand the appeal of it. A film like Last, uh, Last House on the Left, which was another of the breakthrough yeah. films, I think, like 1973, or that film was uh, an excuse for filmmakers to say let's do make a violent movie let's kill up people in a violent way and that one uh really bothered me mm-hmm. i uh, if you feel guilty if you like this movie <laughs> and i uh, you know i i actually went with that movie with a friend who and that, that was a normal thing but we a uh, high school friend a female i hadn't seen in a while and she had no idea what the movie was oh, boy. so wrong audience <laughs> <laughs> did you last the whole movie York. Did she last the whole movie? Yeah, she la- oh, we we all last, lasted the whole movie, but um, it was it was a film like that, which I think leads to a film like Wolf Creek, 
which uh, which is another film which has a huge cult, and it's really well made, and it upsets me, yeah. my sensibility, because it's basically, I think it, it's from a true story. I don't know. I'm sure it happened to somebody somewhere, but there's a gap in there where they don't know what happened to the, to the captive women. So the filmmakers invent terrible things that happen right. to these women. Why do they have to do that? Mm. You know, they have a choice. Do I have, you know, have them just killed and not see what goes on? Or, or do I do really aw- nasty, awful things that come from my imagination? And that's what they chose. And it, it bothers me. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre led a little bit to that. Mm. Uh, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all the gore films that came. It, but, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis was making these uh, gory films, uh, Blood Feasts and 2000 mm-hmm. Maniacs and, uh, in, in the 60s. Yeah. And they were vile movies, although I like, kind of like 2000 <laughs> Maniacs, surprisingly <laughs> enough, but I don't like any of his other movies. Did you discover Terrible those at filmmaker. the time when they're in theaters still, or did you just discover them later? I discovered it in the 70s. I uh-huh. think I saw, um, when I went to USC, in Los Angeles, Los LA had the Main Street was really really seedy, and it had uh, they had movie theaters lying down the Main Street, and they would show two films, three films, four films, and it would cost like a dollar, <laughs> and they would have like bingo in between games. It's called Kino. <laughs> they would have these big games. I've never heard this so before. So the, the theater the theaters would be packed, and, oh, and it wasn't just for the movies. It would be for the, the Kino games. Huh. But they would show exploitation films, which is where I first saw films like uh, Big Dollhouse and Women in Chains and and, uh, and uh, the school teacher, the student nurses, the yeah. Stephanie Rothman film. I, I saw a lot of sleazy exploitation films, which I enjoyed, uh, <laughs> some, some bad, some good. And that's where I saw I saw at least two Herschel Gordon Lewis movies playing together. So this is like 1970, 1960. Oh, actually, I went to USC from 71 or 72 to 77. But it's probably 1973, we'll say. Mm. So that's several years after Mm. these films had come out. And I I didn't know about them. And so I saw Blood Feast, which is a, a really wretched (laughs) <laughs> Some of the worst. If you want to see the definition of bad acting, <laughs> uh, Connie Mason was a Playboy uh, playmate, and she's the female lead, and she's completely wooden. And this, the lead villain, Mel Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> I think he disappeared after this. Oh, really? they, I don't know. I think he on purpose. I think he told Herschel Gordon Lewis, "I am an actor." And then Herschel Gordon Lewis, by the end, realized he wasn't, yeah. and he uh, he just disappeared. He was uh, just and and the and just the violence, including you know pulling out somebody's tongue. But yeah, yeah. that kind of that's where that kind of started is that um, sorry is that where the cult you think comes from because it was his first and the, all that gore or because you put it in cult movies too but i'm assuming it's mostly because it yeah, was landmark j- jingle my uh, my roommate at one point my really good friend bob nowacki came up with a theme song writhing victims of a madman's lust do da do da based uh, based on what was on this poster i mean that was <laughs> so that awesome. was how they promoted it writhing victims of a madman's lust <laughs> <laughs> so uh but but 2000 maniacs which i think has had influence on people uh you know john waters loved her 
you know, shock treatment, you know, the title of his book is kind of based on the shock value of uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He just loved him because he has, I think John Waters said, he's indefensible, and that makes him great. <laughs> so, uh, but 2000 Maniacs is the one that really gave me the creeps, and it's, it's, a, it's uh, people come to a town that doesn't exist. Uh, it's, it's based on a musical, <laughs> one of the musicals, <laughs> which I can't remember the, the name of, but a, a major one from the, but, uh, and the whole townspeople just start killing off all these people who wander into this town. But the scene that really bothered me is just this woman, one of the visitors, young woman sitting with these crazy guys and the guy takes her hand and cuts off her thumb <laughs> uh, and oh my god <laughs> and that's a scene you never forget mm-hmm. and they, they like they're having these festivities including crawl into a barrel and roll you down a hill which looks like a lot of fun except there's spikes in the <laughs> the barrel so that was those are breakthrough movies and they set the tone for the, all the gore films later but they I don't know how many people saw them in the 60s so they might have you know might have been and uh, I mentioned John Waters his, his films aren't horror movies at all except the imagery of a lot of it transcends it and, and fits into horror films and, and the fact that we can see anything nowadays no matter how distasteful it is so uh, that cross borders so those are the ones that, that broke through so by the time you're seeing all these gory horror movies maniac cop kind of movies and maniac psycho looked really really tame mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we we moved way beyond that and uh, everything had to trump the thing that went before it and th- and that's what's happened and it still goes on to agree bone tomahawk is is violent but there's an artistry there that tones it down and you will say with that film 95 percent of the violence should be there and that's part of art it's, it's the same excuse when actresses say well i'll do nudity if that should be in the movie if that she should be nude I guess guys will say that too now. I'll do nudity, but if it's just um, gratuitous, I won't. And that—that's—that's that's the difference between basically good movies and bad movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which you don't discriminate against, which is something. I mean, not necessarily good and bad, but like the, what we're talking about cult movies too, specifically, I guess, kind of uh, now. But like the fact that basket. One of the things I always appreciated was the basket case mm-hmm. would appear in you know on a list with something like the picnic at Hanging Rock. You know, something that is just it fits perfectly into the art house foreign model. And then Basket Case, which I think is this great movie, but when I see it in the book mixed with titles like that, it suddenly, for me, it elevates. Children of Paradise, then Basket Case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're going alphabetical. I love that. But it's not because because you're trying to necessarily, oh, I'm going to elevate Basket Case. Watch me as a critic elevate. It's actually because you genuinely... As I was talking, we were talking to you, you know, off the cuff yesterday. Have affection for that film and think it's like well, I wrote. Uh, I probably would have included it if I didn't have affection for the right. film because I didn't only write about movies mm-hmm. I liked, but it just so happened I did. Mm-hmm. I really, uh, I really appreciated a lot of elements. It, it, it was obviously somebody making freaking heckin' lot or making a. He knew about horror movies and he. He had an affection for them. Came out at the same time as E.T. and then we had this character Belial, and I think I, I compare I compare the to the two. This little monster and <laughs> and this uh, you know affectionate creature that a little boy pals around with in E.T. 
the extraterrestrial. And they're just elephants. <laughs> There's a sense of humor that goes on with uh, Basket Case. If it were done really seriously, I don't think it would have worked, but I don't think the director could make a film that wasn't with uh, such humor to it. There's a big rape scene at the end of of that film where the leading actress get the character female character gets raped by this little creature who we were always giving the benefit of the doubt to and that kind of shocks us and that's as I I write about I don't like that part and a lot of people don't like that part and uh, I interviewed the the producer I think Edgar Ivins his name and uh, he just said we wanted to make it serious we wanted that to happen but he he, he didn't do it it wasn't a gratuitous thing but I think it was a mistake Hmm. but um, those are the choices you have to make as, as filmmakers. What what is the uh, what will viewers think? But if you're an artist, you don't care. But yeah. say this is what would happen if really. And I guess that creature is uh, well. Obviously, that they created that creature, so that creature is capable of doing the most heinous crimes. Right. And we don't forgive. We forgive all the crimes up until that point, and then we don't. Which makes me think of King Kong, where we do a complete reversal, because uh, the music at the end of King Kong, where uh, he's climbing up the building, and all of a sudden Kong, who's done these terrible things the entire movie and has been ferocious and killed indiscriminately, all of a sudden we feel sorry for him because of the music and the plane shooting at him and he doesn't kill the girl he doesn't kill Fay Ray but it is, it is interesting until that scene we don't like it we shouldn't be liking King Kong we f- can feel sorry that he's captured and brought to uh, civilization but he's never done anything good really you just mentioned an uh, interesting point about the director having choices and something I hadn't hadn't even thought about till now about your book series especially after the first book did so well and but there was uh, a lot more movies listed when you decided to do two and you decide to do 50 titles. What is your selection process? Are you trying to, is it just 50 movies that you've been really uh, dying to talk about, write about, or is it you know, a selection process where some are being excluded because the balance is off between, you know, because Breathless, Basket Case, you know, that's, it's an interesting mix. Well, I, well it's an interesting mix. Yeah. That's what I went for for, for both, uh, both the two books. Uh, at the end of uh, Cult Movies, called Cult Movies, but Cult Movies 1, I had a list of films that I, couldn't include even though I'd written about a hundred there was still a long list of films in cult movies too in the intro I say that I made my choices for which films I'd write about in in cult two based upon well I said based upon all the letters I got where people would say these are the films that should be in but they also those people were able to look at my list at the end of the book of films that I had left out including uh, Beat the Devil for for instance to say that that should have gone in right away His Girl Friday uh, White Heat films like that which I could have put in cult movies one and I still really wanted to write about and and, and I kind of in making choices I was thinking there's an audience out there for these films because they're called cult movies so there are people out there who say write about my favorite film 
And uh, if there are a lot of those people who pick the same film over and over again, then I responded because that's my audience. Also, well, so, so cool. whereas with the first book, which was you, maybe more you observing some of the cults that were developing around the rep scene, the burgeoning rep scene at the time, this one includes more talk back from the audience that maybe could have influenced. And, and, and Cult Movies 3, the same, same. same thing. It's oh, just very a cool. lot of back and forth. You know, I had no idea when I wrote Cult Movies that I'd get one piece of mail, you know. <laughs> Who knew? I thought I would, but I, I got a lot of mail and lots of lists of films that sh- should go in, and and a lot a lot of the thing. Uh, it, it was it was I liked a lot of the mail that said, "Have you seen this movie? You might not have seen this movie," and in certain case, uh, certain instances I hadn't. But should I put it in the book if that's the only person who knew about this movie? Is is there really a cult? I, so I I do a little investigation try to find out if people knew of certain films or really behind a lot of the films, The Massacre at Central High. You know, it was still a, a, a film that not a lot of people saw. Nobody knew who only went to mainstream movies had seen because it's not a mainstream movie. But were there people out there who saw it who couldn't get it out of their minds and who were telling other people to see it and wanted other people to see it? Or were there people also who... I've heard about this. How can I see it? If it had become part of the movie conversation, then I would really say, hey, maybe this this is the type of film that should go in. And I wanted, in many cases, Basket Case is another example, I wanted people to know about these mm-hmm. films that I, I was enthusiastic about. Probably in some cases, I mean, my books are known for not being 100 films in the first case or 50 films and the other two books where I like all like them all. So, what was the thinking behind but, changing from 100? But, but uh, well, I'll tell you that yeah. in a minute. Uh, uh, there were certain cases where I say I'll probably enjoy writing about this film, like Massacre at Central yeah. Higher Basket Case, because. I think, because uh, I'm enthusiastic about that, and they are cults, but maybe I can get other people to see them. I think it's worthwhile to, to write about that, pick this film against some film I don't really care about. So in that way, I, I was swayed a little more. Um, when you do a book, a lot of... When you make, do a book, you have to say, "I'm going to turn this book in in a year," or that—that's generally what it is. They don't really want you to say, "Well, give me the advance on the money, and I'll turn this book in three or four years." <laughs> they don't want that indiscriminate. So time. when I did cult movies, having no idea how long a chapter would take me to write, I'm—I'm, I'm, I, I, you know. I, at 365 days in a year, I'll, I'll sign a contract for that. I think the book should be uh, 100, 100 films. I think I actually, nah, I've completely forgot. I was going to write about 75 films and in a year, and I said 365, and you know, it's five, every five days I have to write a, a chapter. That doesn't sound like so much. <laughs> so I ended up writing 100 essays in a year, so it's like every three and a half days and these are not short essays and they're long synopses and a lot of detail and a lot of thinking and uh, I ended up writing the final month I wrote 20 essays in 30 days wow and pretty good ones but uh, too much yeah and so when they 
the couple movies was successful and they said can you do another one and I say probably not it's too much (laughs) I can't do it and they said they'll say we'd be happy to do one for 150 uh, 50 the the funny thing which this is between you and me audience (laughs) is um, when I did cult movies three I don't know if people notice this I, it had been several years since I did cult movies one and two, and I started writing the essays, and I, I couldn't remember how long they were, or I didn't re- look, didn't look back at the other book. If you'll notice, those are longer essays than in either of the first two mm-hmm. books. I, I, I really, <laughs> I really wrote a lot in those <laughs> books without without realizing I didn't have to. So that's your. Uh, that's, that's your your extra. You got you got <laughs> a you got extra there. cherry on cherry on the top. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting with us and talking about. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Movies and the book, and uh, I know we've gotten a lot of people involved in checking out your books. We'll have people try and check out the eBooks. Right. Yeah, That's that would be, that would be good. That'd be supporting you directly. They're a little bit of a secret in the world. Yeah. But, uh, eBooks are taken from from the cult movie books, and which are are out of print. So the only way you'll read a lot of these essays, and it's more than half over the three three uh, there are three you have to purchase and there's one shorter one on science fiction which is free yeah so people should check the, those read out. the free one check out the free one first and if you like it then go to the others any uh, of the films from this list before we go because uh, we're going to be recommending five each that you know mean a lot i'm sure all the, all the horror movies that are in the there the, the night of the demon basket case i think barbarella's in the science fiction yeah yeah altered states uh, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, all, all those for sure. But the, the uh, White Heat, there's a melodrama, film noir kind of email. I forget the title of what, which they gave it. But uh, I would say from cult movies too, more than more than half of them are in one of the ebooks. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It's yeah. uh, your big inspiration for why we did the show. And just our general approach, which is, you know, uh, promoting some films we we just like and that we don't think people know enough about. And so. Well, that's, you know, that's what I've always done is try to get people to see movies. And so I appreciate what you're doing, getting people to see movies. Yeah. And hopefully people will be able to see a movie about you because Brian's going to finish this yes. documentary for the world. Sure, this is why we're sure here. he is. This yes, is why yeah. we're here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks, right. So, yeah, so hopefully you enjoyed hearing the man himself speak. I, I think it's still pretty neat. He doesn't do that many interviews uh, in the audio format that I've found. There's a great one at our podcast that we love supporting characters, Bill Ackerman's podcast. Go listen to that because it's a different conversation altogether. Yeah, we knew we couldn't <laughs> We knew we knew couldn't go three hours in depth because we had just taken a, two days of his time uh, yeah. interviewing him for a documentary. So we knew it was going to be a briefer thing, but it, it felt it's kind of perfect and perfect off the Halloween episodes now because he talks so much about his love of you know horror and just the way he still watches horror films. I just think that's I, I don't amazing. Know, pretty I want to be that. that. I want to be in terms of a lot of things, but in terms of the guy who still watches horror when I'm his age, I, I, I want to be there. Cause at I don't, one I in the morning. Yeah. I'm that, <laughs> I can't even do that now. So I'm like, man, I don't yeah. know. 
Well, his kids are all grown up. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's it, there's something about the way he. That's a commitment. That's someone who really cares about the stuff, and it'd be fun to start like a Danny Perry um, horror movie a week like club where oh man, we, every, but either he or we recommend a horror movie and everyone watches it off Netflix. Just something. It could be anything because it strikes me as he's just watching whatever's coming out. You know. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure he'd be open to suggestions yeah. if he hasn't already seen them. No, that's a cool idea. We should we should pursue that. But so for those that may or may not have heard the first cult movies episode we did like I said to close the first season one of the things we thought we would do again this time this will probably be our format every time we do this is we want to read some passages of Danny's writing that go along with the films we're talking about so that you get a sense of the whole experience of um, not just the films but you know what he had to say about them and and how that may or may not draw you in a little bit more yeah you'll have to listen to our fumbly uh, narration but still you know it gets it gets it across yeah um do you want to start um why don't you start with your discovery yeah. uh this will blow your mind unless i've already told you this but this surprises people that i'd never seen this movie uh purposely i will say uh john carpenter one of my favorite directors would be in my top 10 directors of all time I've never seen Dark Star. Whoa. 20 years in space, 1 million light years from Earth. Their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space. Back home, back home in Malibu. I used to surf a lot, Talby. I used to be a great surfer. Travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. to bomb number 20. Return to the bomb bay immediately. But I have received the operational signal. I had said to myself, kind of like Lawrence of Arabia, even though it's not anything like Lawrence of Arabia, I'd said, to myself, <laughs> I'd said to myself, I would watch that movie on a big screen. And so I've been kind of holding out for Nubev to play it, and it just hasn't happened since I've lived in L.A. I'm sure I've missed it a couple times in L.A., but when this episode rolled around, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just gonna I'm going to make this my my Danny Perry tribute uh, and see the one Carpenter film I was still holding out for. And to be honest, I'm still looking forward to seeing it uh, eventually on the big screen now after watching it because uh, it is such an unusual movie. Uh, so this was John Carpenter's film he made at USC initially. He made the first 45 minutes. Uh, it's really fun because you get to see in the credits Nick Castle, Tommy Lee Wallace, so a couple you know uh, career regulars in there. Uh, Nick Castle was the shape in Halloween and Tommy Lee Wallace uh, has gone on to production design and edit and write tons of movies directed Fright Night 2 and the It miniseries and uh, Dan O'Bannon which this definitely feels like a Dan O'Bannon movie as well like I see that from start to end uh, totally. who was a classmate so I guess they were at USC he made about 45 minutes of it and then he tried to get more funding he ended up dropping out of school and taking the movie with him and then finding the budget to shoot the rest and on 35 I guess and then it was was all blown up to 35 uh, i know that it ended up with the same distributor as uh, deep throat and then had similar problems because uh so, same with texas chainsaw massacre actually the uh deep throat people got into legal problems and then all the films they had also kind of uh fell into legal problems uh due to the court case so uh but you know this this was this was to be honest this was exactly what i thought it was going to be <laughs> uh i've been thinking about this you know because I, I i had a general uh, sense of what it would be if though i will say i mean the amazing thing is just how goofy it is which is so weird when it, for john carpenter because he's just not that i mean he's got goofy moments 
in some of his movies, but overall he's obviously a pretty serious guy. Uh, you know, big trouble tonally is, is I wouldn't call it just goofy. It's actually just great comedy, but, uh, this is like the movie it most reminds me of really is bad taste. I mean, it, it has so many similarities in tone. It has the same feeling of a guy who's just putting everything he's got, uh, the minimal resources he's got on screen with what he can find around him uh, in the same way. And both films kind of got a budget infusion in the second half of their filming. So they kind of get a little bigger uh, to an extent. But uh, this is just this really wacky uh, movie with these four astronauts who are uh, in deep space. Uh, They've got a mission just to destroy unstable planets. They've been up there for years and have totally lost any con- uh, contact with Earth, even though it's like they get, have some contact that's super delayed, uh, and they've all kind of gone a little nuts. And they're super; they're all kind of antisocial. They all have big beards. Dan O'Bannon plays one called Pinback, <laughs> um, and and there's a doctor, there's a Doolittle as the captain Doolittle, and the bo- they have a smart bomb that actually uh, literally is a smart bomb, and you have to talk to it to make it, <laughs> to make it do what you want, and it talks back, and eventually ends up kind of destroying them. They have an alien on board that they've abducted who has these like little like cue the wing serpent feet and it's super goofy it's like a giant beach ball i mean it's really surprising in the if you watch all the carpenter's other films first and then come back to this like i have it's super surprising but there's a part of me that could see like i could imagine loving this movie in the long run like like on first viewing i'm like yeah it's interesting kind of surprising a little goofy and quirky but I can imagine, like, if I see it a couple more times, that this might be one of those movies that I just utterly love because it's so odd, you know. Just the and and I'd also call it like a total hangout movie. Like oh, yeah. it is just it is just characters hang out. There's no real impetus of plot. There's nothing to really no forward momentum uh, directly. And it's and it's funny. Um, I had one funny thought though watching it because I, I had just shown uh, the thing to a class of students a couple days ago uh, which obviously uh, who hadn't seen it and it went over gangbusters like you'd imagine uh, but I actually laughed myself at this thought so I'm watching I'm watching Dark Star and I thought to myself oh imagine if this movie is the backstory to the Norwegians at the start of the thing <laughs> so if this is who they were they're, they're, they're up in space they crash they have to deal with the thing it kills them all the one guy's got a beard he explodes and then the thing starts I could totally make sense <laughs> that the Norwegians would have lost their mind uh in this movie but uh yeah there's something about it that uh just kind of i kind of kind of do love it uh and i will say i'm gonna call it right now we are gonna have to end this episode uh with the uh alabama what is it um uh, uh benson arizona uh song at the very start it's i'll put it in my top five now up there with sunny boy which i love the song at the start of sunny boy by uh david carradine the song just the use of hey let's play a song and they p- turn on the song in the middle of space it has got to be one of my favorite uses of a of a song track. So we'll I'm I'm calling for us to play that out on the whole season. Uh, at the end of this episode, uh, it'll be some good fun. But uh, what like what do it. you think of this flick? I like it. It's it's uh, it's definitely not like his other films, really. I mean, like you say that that streak of goofiness it definitely and and the sort of deep spaceness of it feels mm-hmm. obviously more O'Bannon than Carpenter. I mean, he wouldn't really do much in terms of deep space. I mean, I guess, you know, Starman, but that's more earthbound, you know, I mean, I don't know. So it feels different and it's goofier and all that, but I, I like it. It's really endearing in its way and it's trippy. And yeah, I just, I think it's a pretty adorable movie and uh, it's grown on me every time I've watched it. Yeah. One of the best parts is the captain uh, of the ship 
is who who you you think is dead at the start is actually in like um frozen s- suspended animation like deep freeze basically and towards the end they have to ask him some questions and he just sounds like a totally stoned guy you know <laughs> what i mean in, in a freezer and so it's just got the, it's an interesting like counterculture movie it's almost like the easy rider of space <laughs> or or it's almost like somebody watched 2001 like john and his buddies they they're at usc they watch 2001 they're all high and they're like hey let's go back to the dorm and shoot our own one <laughs> and they and they just got the equipment and started shooting it, it doesn't feel like there's a in a lot of ways it almost doesn't feel like a movie initially and then it kind of pulls you in um so so let me read a little bit of uh, what danny says which uh hopefully will echo some of this um it's more kind of on the production that's kind of interesting so it start he starts with there's a long quote uh by carpenter talking about kind of how it came together and how i wouldn't say he, he had a lot of fun making it but he knew it had kind of it didn't get him a job. So he says, uh, the end of the quote is, Dark Star was the end of youth for me. It didn't work. That's the end of the Carpenter quote. And then Danny comes in. Uh, but for viewers looking for something unusual, it does work. In 1970 to 74, Carpenter was obviously much like the innovative astronaut Doolittle, who fills up two rows of hanging bottles with varying amounts of water to create a makeshift vibraphone and uses a floating piece of the exploded ship's debris as a surfboard to glide through space. When making Dark Star, Carpenter used everything at his disposal to complete a legitimate film. As much art as Doolittle's music, despite having little money for production values, Smartly, Carpenter wasn't afraid to call attention to his limited financial resources, to let viewers know that he was just making do. He takes O'Bannon's shoebox sets and creates a sense of claustrophobia, fills the soundtrack with a wide range of music, from classical to rock to country, to intentionally boring string music to his own trademark pulsating Moog synthesizer sound, a less tense version uh, than played throughout Halloween. Uses interesting opticals and animation effects, builds an 80-foot shaft and flips his camera on its side to make Pinback's elevator hanging scene seem believable and exciting. Allows for a monster that is no more than a beach ball with claws because he can use it for humor as well as suspense. Varies the visuals by including several sequences in which characters appear on television monitors and seem to be addressing the viewer. And gives voices to the ship's computer, a sexy but motherly voice, and the bomb about to be detonated, a fussy male, thereby adding two characters to the film. Uh, the reason I pull that out is not his typical like kind of funny quirky sense of how he reads a movie what that does for me which i hadn't read many times he's done this is he has a total sense of filmmaking so he is totally picking apart all the filmmaking techniques uh all the production design innovations that were done and that it just kind of almost surprised me in a way of what danny was picking up on there and really like defending its shoestring but going but look how they use the shoestring and I really like that. I just thought that that to me was like a neat, neat to see him identifying of those little, uh, all those little elements. Yeah, that's definitely something that I noticed early on reading his books. I was getting into movies at the time. I was starting to get a sense of behind the scenes, you know, a director's function and things like that. But I don't know that I was fully grasping on some other levels the, the idea of what budget can do to sets and how certain directors can use those resources in different ways. And when you think about it, you can't help but be impressed mm. um, once you sort of have the context. And and so, yeah, he started to give me a lot of that, a lot of behind-the-scenes type um, info that just sort of shifted my viewpoint on film in general. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, he's, he's really well-rounded. But yeah, so that's, that's if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. I actually saw it on Amazon Prime. Uh, it wasn't the best quality, so I probably should have waited for the... I know there's a Blu-ray out there. Yeah, I have the Blu-ray. Um, but now I'm going to wait to see it on big screen. If It does feel like a movie be um to um have a party for uh, <laughs> uh, even if it's just a personal party before you go to the movie that's how it feels like yeah 
definitely. I there was a few that I was circling that I hadn't seen yet in this book. I landed on Daughters of Darkness from 1971. Mm-hmm. You're safe with me. I killed no one. Again. It's difficult to forget. Ah, oh, you will. After a while, it'll only be the remembrance of a bad dream. And then the remains of a remembrance. More and more faint in your mind. I've seen many a night fall away into an even more endless night. Nights like last night. Who do you think I am? A kind of ghoul? A vampire? Oh, no, my dear. Um, my absolute faves. Yeah, which is, it's one of those I should have seen a long time ago. I've been aware of it, obviously, since I read the book. But I don't know why. I feel like it's one that I, I maybe had tried some years ago and just didn't didn't catch me at that time or I, I wasn't patient enough with it. I don't know what my deal was, but I did enjoy it. It's incredibly atmospheric. It's basically the story of this newly newlywed couple who's, passing through a vacation resort in do you know what country there are they in i I forget no somewhere in europe but yeah um they they sort of cross paths with this mysterious countess and her um female assistant if you will i guess traveling companion and you know there's a there's a heavy vampire vibe right out of the gate and it's just an interesting thing to kind of see it unfold and, you know, see how sort of sparsely the the hotel that they're staying in has nobody else in it, really, except for them. And it's and the and the Mater D like recognizes the countess from having seen her like 45 years ago and she hasn't changed or something. So immediately you're like, what's going on? And and then there's a whole sort of scenario with this young woman and her now husband and his tentativeness about introducing her to his family. He just keeps saying, you know, his mom and some other things like that they're he'll eventually bring her to them, but like he's really stalling on it and it's that's an interesting little mystery too. But um it's it's cool. Like I like I said, very atmospheric and stylish yeah it's i don't know what what are your what are your thoughts on this one i mean similar i mean i haven't seen enough movies by like jean roland yet i've seen a couple you know i've seen like maybe three and this is like it takes some of that kind of pacing but 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 goes i don't want to say more mainstream but makes it a little and hunger obviously is a bit of a reference point but it is definitely more accessible than roland and it i guess just has a tighter narrative framework but i am a the reason i discovered this movie uh, before i did this book is i'm a huge delphine Seyrig fan and this is one of those just mesmerizing mesmerizing performances her in a horror film where she wasn't at all a horror actress she's um you know very famous for last year marion bad had um uh jen dealman and uh muriel are, are some of the ones and she's just you know just a one of those just breathtaking screen presences uh i know she became a, a major kind of figure in the feminist movement uh as in terms of french actresses but uh this performance as this lesbian countess uh, vampire is just it should be trashy but somehow this film just some I don't know it skirts that line between uh, sleazy trash and high art in a way that you know great vampire flicks like this can uh, Harry Kumil's the director interesting director I don't know much about him I, I know he made an interesting movie that I've never seen with Orson Welles on a boat uh, Mar- I don't want to call it Mariposa that's not the right name but um, something like that we'll, we'll look it up and I haven't seen it yet and this is just yeah it's just one of those movies I think is just really uh, kind of I don't know just kind of pulls you in and it takes its time and the, the setting is stunning 
that big hotel in yeah. the middle of nowhere. Cinematography is gorgeous. Uh, yeah, it's just it's that you know it's like kind of a benchmark of art horror. Yeah, cinema. definitely art horror is a good way to put it. I really like Danielle Ume. I think her name is Ume. I don't know how to say it. Um, she's the young girl who's married. She's just got this really captivating like it's like a look it's partially her hairstyle and her face and it's not it's i don't know i can't describe it but she's gorgeous and angelic in this certain way that i feel like i only saw in the 60s and 70s for some reason so she really stands out to me i'd never seen her before and yeah delphine sirig is great you know um she's powerful too yeah. she's got this uh, what's the the recent movie that draws a lot from this one that would is like the perfect companion is uh, kiss of the damned yeah. by um san cassavetes uh if you're looking for like a modern vampire film it's it's really great but it it owes you know 90 percent of kind of its feel to this movie for sure yeah um here's what danny has to say or what part i grabbed he says i didn't think daughters a horror masterpiece then and i still don't but i greatly appreciate its oddness its daring stylistic impositions its spellbinding character interaction and he says and that kumel had clearly made an art film not the exploitation film that gemini the company producing it wanted as it drifted off into temporary obscurity over the decade it remained distinct in my memory while countless horror films some better blended into one another as it turned out others couldn't forget this film either and in the early 80s it re-emerged at revival houses even at the museum of modern art it's a flawed film to be sure but of all the horror films that have strived for high camp only Roman Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers and George Romero's Night of the Living Dead have so masterfully com- combined traditional horror elements with outrageous, often ludicrous wit. Only Paul Bartel's cult item, Private Parts, and Paul Schrader's Cat People can approach its sexual perversity, but neither matches the eroticism that pervades every scene of Daughters. Moreover, it is the rare horror film with social relevance. It's more than expressed feminist themes at a time when mainstream movies weren't so brave. It actually had a decidedly anti-male attitude despite being made by men. So, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of context. The eroticism, you're right, it's, it's definitely the part of it that makes it the obtuseness of the story and the way the characters act and the, also the, the eroticism of some of the sex scenes does make it feel different and stand out and yeah i don't know it's it will definitely stay with you and i'm not saying that in a way that's like it's so shocking or anything but it's it's like a weird dream or something i can't, I can't figure it out is that one i've only got a really crappy dvd that's one of the reasons i haven't rewatched it in a long time is it on blue yep i have blue okay. i believe blue underground I oh okay think. then i gotta pick that up no. so the movie i was trying to grasp at the director harry kumil who is a belgian director so maybe the film's french belgium in terms of location is malpertius uh, is the film he made uh, after Daughters, I believe, um, or just before it. But either way, it had, has kind of a pretty big role for Orson Welles in there, too, apparently. So, And it's horror as well, so I'm very curious to see that one. I'm going to have to check it out. Never even heard of that one. Yeah, it's one I've heard of, but that's about it. Like, I've never uh, made the jump. Um, all right, so we're, that's our what we haven't seen. Uh, number five for me would be... It would be almost number one on my list for Westerns. That's how much I think of this film. It's it's so hard. And I think we're going to, I think we can pretty much commit to saying we're going to do Westerns in season three because it's overdue. Um, You know, we spend a lot of time on noir, a lot of time on horror so far, but uh, Westerns, uh, Westerns have been appearing throughout our lists, but uh, not one solely dedicated. So uh, the film for me is uh, John Ford's My Darling Clementine. Howdy. Good evening. 
I'm Wyatt Earp. I know. I know all about you. And your reason for being here. But I heard a lot about you too, Doc. You left your mark around in Deadwood, Denver and places. Fact, a man could almost follow your trail going from graveyard to graveyard. There's one here too. The biggest graveyard west of the Rockies. Marshals and I usually get along much better when uh, we understand that right away. Get your meaning, Doc. Good. Have a drink? Thanks, believe I will. Mac, a glass of champagne for the marshal. Make it whiskey. You're my guest, marshal. Champagne. Champagne it is, Mac. Uh, from 1946. And I definitely thought about leaving it off for the Western list, but... Man, I think so much, so highly of this film, and I'm not a big, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Ford acolyte either. This, me neither. This, for me, it's almost an anomaly of just a magnificent movie. Not to take away from, like, Ford as a director, it's just, you know, I think he is a director of his era uh, and influenced a lot of our favorite directors more than he might influence us, Yeah. you know? But this movie is, I call this, you know, jokingly, but not, this is his Bresson Ozu masterpiece i mean this film if you had taught if i had watched when i first saw this film i started at a uh you know a retrospect uh when i was maybe 20 years old maybe 21 um of all these movies perfect prints i think it was the um the thing scorsese works on with the um preservation society uh and you know if you had told me Bresson or ozu had directed it i wouldn't have bad i would have like not knowing enough about movies at that point i would have gone oh that makes sense from what <laughs> i see because that's what it is i see the influence that this would have had on them it's so it's so restrained so minimal and what's so great about this movie is it could be a movie like the wild bunch in terms of like the emotional core of it there there should be just like or like tombstone the film obviously which is more or less the same story uh because it's a revenge film it could have this like explosive center and just be this really intense movie. And instead, the thing, including the passage I'll read from uh, Danny, the thing you're struck with are all the little moments, and they are magnificent. I mean, this is uh, for me my favorite Henry Ford film. You know, outside of him playing the villain uh, in Once Upon a Time in the West, but this is he's just. He, and again, that's another thing. I'm not a biggest John Ford fan. I'm also not the biggest Henry uh, Fonda fan. Uh, not that I'm not a fan. It's more just like again an actor from a generation who uh, was like a classic leading man for people. But to me, there there isn't as much of an edge to that except for those couple roles I'm just uh, mentioning now. He's brilliant as Wyatt Earp in this. Uh, it basically starts with him and his brothers uh, on a cattle drive. He's he's no longer uh, a sheriff at that point, even though he's a legend already. Uh, they go. I can't remember. I think cattle of theirs are stolen. The two of the three brothers go to get it. They come back and find their other brother has been killed and all the cattle taken, all their stuff. Uh, so he goes to Tombstone and he adopts being sheriff again to try to you know, figure out who the killer was. But the the beautiful center of this movie, like a classic, like the other, the great Tombstone, which I enjoy that very much too, but it's uh, his relationship to Doc Holliday, which is just one of my, like probably one of my 50 favorite performances of all time in this film by uh, Victor Mature plays Doc Holliday, and I love how he plays him. And He's I also great. love how Val plays him and, and the other, but it's just, it's great. And Linda Darnell's Chihuahua is pretty hilarious too. Uh, some of the musical scenes maybe get a little much, but uh, it, it, it's, yeah, my, the clip 
I'm, I'm playing for for this one is you know kind of the first meeting between Doc and uh, Wider, but the the way they you know respect each other are also a little on guard, but eventually understand each other in this in such a dangerous place because I guess it's hard for us to imagine, but you know if you're in a place like Tombstone, just the incredible danger that a place like that is. I I, I just think it's one of those movies. It's so rare that when a western or a horror film, right, where those kind of movies end, but what you take away from it were quiet moments like him being shaved, uh, him him like leaning against a post or kicking his feet up on the post. I talked about it a little bit. What was that movie last year? The western with Jeff Bridges, Hell or High Water. Yes. How that has a scene exactly like it when he's waiting and he kicks his feet up on a post and he's just, it's it's the exact same kind of moment and it's nice. kind of kind of a great uh, thing. It it's a terrific terrific uh, quiet movie with also some great actual action sequence towards uh, the end when their revenge part actually does eventuate. But I can't say enough about this this little film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's perfect. I don't know. Is that Criterion? Yep. Criterion's yeah. put it okay. out. I love one thing I love about it is I I came to it I think I want to say I came to it after Rio Bravo, which I adore Rio Bravo. Um, but boy, you couldn't get much more of a different performance mm-hmm. from Walter Brennan between the yeah. two movies. Walter Brennan is obviously an interesting sort of sidekick character, some comic relief in Rio Bravo, and he's great, and I love him in it. But in this movie, he's like the evil patriarch of, you know, the uh, the bad family, basically. The Clanton clan. The Clanton clan, yes. <laughs> the Clantons, yeah. And, and he plays it perfectly. He's so mm-hmm. menacing, and I just... It's one of those things where you see the range of an actor, and you can assume a range from most actors that you think are pretty solid, but then when you see the difference, you're just like, wow, that's night and day. That's a totally different thing, and he's convincing in both. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, no, yeah, it's just like the cast in general, just so well-balanced, you know? Uh, but this is a great a great one, if, and I think it's a good jumping-in Western for some people. Now, you know, if you're if you're interested in seeing something that is a little quieter, but just feels, I don't know, it feels classic. I don't, I don't know, it's a, it's a hard thing to explain with movies like this um so let's see what uh, our buddy danny says um okay so he has one line here uh, only in recent years has it emerged from the shadows of the ford wayne westerns partly because of increased interest in henry fonda and partly because it appeals to many people who usually don't like westerns my darling clementine is a different kind of western while nine people are gunned down and there's much violence its gentle title does not seem inappropriate while a major theme of the film is violent retribution it can be and has been described as lovely, poignant, nostalgic, sentimental, tender, sweet, and poetic. Words rarely used to compliment a Western. When we leave the theater after Wyatt Earp has brought peace to Tombstone, we feel, we feel peaceful. We haven't forgotten the killings, but we remember other images better, such as Wyatt balancing himself on the back of back legs of his chair and like a little country boy putting one foot then quickly before he falls, the other on the street post in front of him. Clementine climbing off the stage into the dusty, deserted street and immediately establishing herself in Wyatt's eyes as the prettiest lady in Tombstone. Wyatt and Clementine talking, taking a long, majestic stroll to the town gathering, her hand on the crook of his arm, her skirt blowing slightly in the wind, he looking proud. Um, White and Clementine watching the other dancers and wanting to join him, but he, as he knows, is too shy to ask. White and Clementine dancing, the four herbs sitting around their campfire chatting about life and love, revealing a deep affection for one another. Um, and he kind of go, goes on like, more than the violence, we remember the way people relate to each other in Ford's West. Uh, it's the director's own version of realism. I really like that last part. More than violence, we remember the way people relate to each other in Ford's West. Uh, just, you know, it, it perfectly sums up that movie. Like, you, you, you don't need the other two and a half pages. <laughs> no. Like, 
it cut to the core of why this is a worthwhile western because it's different than other westerns yeah i mean he's responding i think to the sort of poeticism that ford was capable of and i do Mm -hmm. think along with you i think this is one of his best movies and i think he he has a tendency to and maybe the two things aren't connected maybe i just conflate them myself but that poetic nature sometimes seemed to tip on over into sentimentalist you know stuff that i don't care for quite as much um but when he hit it just right it just has this beautiful sense of yeah an artiste if you will behind the scenes and i I think this is him at, at the height of his powers yeah, like The Searchers is an interesting one because it's like, I think there's some of the best moments in all of movies in that film. Like just some moments where you're like, wow, movies. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then other moments that are like goofy and kind of out of place and almost ruin the tone of it. You know, yeah, so it's, he, it's a fascinating thing. That's a, th- that's a problem I have with Ford across the board is there, there sometimes are those moments that take me out in a way that I'm, I don't know, I don't want to say... I feel betrayed, but part of me's like, wait, what? The guy who did this really cool thing also <laughs> thinks this is funny? And then, you know, you have to understand, obviously, it's mm-hmm. part of the time the films came out, and it just it didn't play quite the same. So, yeah, there's an interesting mixture of things when you watch Ford. You know, I, I think he's, he's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, good pick. Um, my number five is a movie that Danny does not care for so much. And a lot of people don't care for it. But it again, fascinating is a good word. And even in failure, I feel like a director like John Borman makes something to really chew on. Uh, I'm going with his film Zardoz from 1974. Zardoz, Zardoz speaks to you. His chosen ones, the gun is good. Who came here in the stone head? I don't know. It is the only path and passage into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. Tell me everything. My name is Zed. For Zandos, I am an exterminator. This is a movie he made right on the heels, basically, of Deliverance, you know, one of the biggest hits of his career, critical and commercial, if I recall. And so it was one of those sort of cashing in a ticket kind of movies, I think, because (laughs) you watch it and you're like, how did they sign off on this? Even in 1974, when we're starting to see a lot of that personal cinema coming out of Hollywood and stuff, it's, it's a bizarre... like. If I try to sum up the movie, which I'll attempt to do, it's just going to sound ludicrous, and it really does. It, it doesn't do the movie any favors at all. Just show Sean Connery in his one piece. Yeah, that's all ever, you need. <laughs> if you've seen the pictures, it basically looks like I think Danny says. I won't read the part of the review, but he says it's like he looks like Pancho Villa in a red diaper, <laughs> which I think is accurate because it's basically like a red right. waist cloth, and then he's wrapped in bullets on. And he's bare-chested, and he's got a long ponytail. So it's a very interesting look. <laughs> and holding a gun, right? And holding a gun, yeah. And he's yeah. got a very interesting look for this movie. But the basic idea is that it's a distant future, 
and there are different factions of th- this sort of society on this in this world and one of the factions is called the brutals and they basically live in the sort of outlands area of this um this world and they every once in a while they're visited by this giant head <laughs> that is there that has become their god he's called zardoz the head speaks to them and it floats in the air it's a giant stone head and it spits guns out of its mouth and tells them to take the guns and that the penis is evil and it's this totally bizarre thing and so that the brutals themselves have divided into certain factions some of them are executioners who kill off i i I don't fully understand what the what the qualifications are of why they kill certain certain people but sean connery's character is named zed and he's one of those and upon a visit from the head, he sneaks into the head's mouth and finds a man there, very much like the Wizard of Oz, which becomes a touchstone in the film later, who's sort of pulling the strings and he's operating the head and making it look like this god thing. And he ends up tossing the guy out of the head and the head floats back to where it came from, which is this place called the Vortex. And that's where the, this other race of... People called the Immortals live, and they sort of rule over uh, everything, and they've created Zardoz as this god-like creature to sort of keep the um, lesser beings in line. And so then Zed is sort of invades their territory and throws everything into chaos in, in terms of the way things are with them. And I won't go too much further with that, but it gets it gets kind of trippy and weird, and uh, it's, it's, it's hard to express what it's like to watch it by trying to summarize it. Um, but it does start to go to like places that I feel like 2001 goes to towards the end. But I don't want to make it sound quite as um. Well, there's a baby in a diaper in that too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they both they both have the actually there's probably no diaper now. Yeah, <laughs> a um, diaperless baby. Yeah, it's it's a trippy ending. I've never seen this one, man. It's I, we I, gotta watch I, it. I just want to get your take on it. It's always been on my radar. And I just want to get yeah. too bonkers. <laughs> it is it is bonkers, and and there's a good chance you'll come away going like, well, that was a f- waste of time. But there is also a chance that you'll see some of the fascinating. It's one of those things you're like, you can see Borman poking and prodding at some ideas and thematics, and definitely trying to do something more thought provoking and interesting than maybe what he's able to accomplish. Um, Which he's always done. Like, yeah, I agree. Foreman's fascinating. Look, I mean, and at some point, Deliverance is going to be on one of my lists because it's actually, I've often said it's my favorite American film. Like, I just think it's a total freaking masterpiece. Like, it's just, it blows me away anytime I've seen it. And and every time he's made something like that, he then follows it up with something totally bizarre. Like, you know, you've got Zardoz and Excalibur and the Emerald Far. It just, he, he's just a, a strange director. He never seemed to... Um, which I always respect those directors who who don't not like Lynch and Tarantino and people who are, have clear authorial voices. He is not that type of filmmaker. It's like he is almost purposely wanting to try the thing he hasn't done yet. Yeah, and challenges himself to go into a whole another world with it, and it's it's always super interesting. Well, and he, I would say, you could compare him to somebody like at least in terms of Zardoz, somebody like the Wachowskis, where you have a film like Have you seen Cloud Atlas? I forget if you're a fan of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so. The Kowskis, I feel like, try to in- 
inject some some bigger thematic ideas into their movies and whether or not they're successful depends i guess on how open you are to allowing their stories to you know fly by you you know because sometimes people can be like well this is just silly i think cloud atlas is a really neat movie a lot Um, of people have said that to me i've got to check it out i you know i can see again there are certain things about it where i could see them maybe pulling people out and and stuff but it's tom twyker as well right yeah so i and i like his stuff i do too i do too yeah he's one of those guys as well who i think wants to have other things going on so i feel like that's what zardoz is and that's what he's going for and your mileage may vary as to whether or not you just want to throw the whole thing away or if you want to sort of try and extract some of those themes and think about them and and i think that's part of what i do every time i i try to rewatch it and i was showing my wife part of it and it's always an interesting thing to bring somebody in the middle of a movie, which is never what I like to do. I don't ever like to do that. But, you know, it just happened to be a thing where I was watching it and she sat down. And usually when I'm watching a movie like that, I'll just turn it right off because we're going to watch something. But she sat there and watched it and I gave her a little bit of the backstory, again, knowing it sounded ridiculous. But she started to become engaged by it. And my wife is a big science fiction fan, a big philosophy fan. So I think, again, even mixed ideas and results are intriguing. You know, you won't Mm. see another movie like it uh, anytime soon. I don't think, you know, um, so there's that. But um, anyway, Danny, Danny's opening paragraph goes like this. He says, in some or more exciting, terrifying dreams, we may find ourselves thrust into an alien hostile environment where we are at the mercy of strangers from another culture who want to kill us for reasons we cannot comprehend. No film has better captured the essence of this particular nightmare than John Borman's Deliverance. Borman, who explored a surreal, hallucinatory world in The Exorcist II, The Heretic, and a mythical fantasy world in Excalibur, simulated a dream world for a second time when he made Zardoz. Unfortunately, not all our dreams are worth remembering, some are like Zardoz. The <laughs> premises are exciting, but the dreams don't carry through. They don't make sense. Not so bad in itself, but they don't seem worth unscrambling until they do. So he closes on a sentence that I like, but um, overall, you know, he has a lot of complaints about this movie and he, I think, finds it, you know, undercooked and not ultimately carrying out what what's going on. He also says something about ah, basically like messy filmmaking and confused thematics being mistaken for profundity i'm I'm loosely paraphrasing but basically the idea that you know people taking a profound notion away from a filmmaker who is actually not really expressing things properly um which you know i'm sure happens all the time um but he you know he's particularly hard on this movie and i get it 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 wasn't well reviewed i don't think at the time but like i said i love connery that's a thing and uh charlotte rampling's in this i ended up doing a an unintentional charlotte rampling double feature with my next movie i like her a lot she's one of the the uh immortals in this movie yeah she has an interesting cold uh you know just like in talk you're you're drawn to her but there is a coldness there that's always interesting i agree yeah there's definitely something she's an actress out of time in some ways like not like people you see like i can't think of somebody i'm like well there's the modern day show there isn't another modern day there's no this will sound weird to her like if you look at her now she is one of those actresses who her eyes look like that of a 20 year old even though she's now probably you know 70 something like like she looks young if you just look at her eyes it's weird it's like it's it's a weird thing that somebody can age but their eyes literally look you know 
like he, like she hasn't aged a day. It's just she has that kind of hypnotic quality, I guess. Yeah, her eyes are definitely captivating. But yeah, between those two actors and even failed attempts at some sort of philosophical, existential thematics are enough for me, uh, as weak as I sound in that. But it, yeah, there's just something about it. Just uh, and and it's kind of bonkers. So yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. For when we get to our catching up on each other's missed uh, screenings. I, I got to add that to the list. Cool, cool. Because that sounds like uh, it could be a fun one we could drink to. Yes. Um, my next one is one of my absolutely favorite horror films, Nicolas Cage's The Wicker Man. <laughs> wait, 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 hold on. I'm misreading that this book came out when? <laughs> oh, what a piece of shit. This book's some old movie. Is in this. Oh, I just Edward assumed. Woodward. Well, how's this going to bring back their fucking honey? Killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey! Uh, <laughs> Danny, Danny, what are you doing? Uh, don't worry, I will have inserted the clip of Nick Cage screaming. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- that movie, yes, yeah, that movie maybe plays for midnight for fun and will have a cult of its own. But let's talk about the original Wicker Man by Robin Hardy, 1973. Now, those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And, and you, you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer I'll be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god, to whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past? Now, sir, what of him? Well, he's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance... Uh, the origination of my Iwawuwa joke. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite movies slash horror movies of all time. Like this is just one of those movies that I saw when I was maybe I don't know sixteen or something. Sixteen when I was into horror. I had never seen a movie like this. It's that weird ass folksy vibe, like Hippies Gone Sour, which is just, there aren't a lot of movies that have this vibe. A couple of the others I've kind of um, written in this folk vibe, uh, The Witch recently, uh, and Blood on Satan's Claw, Claw, if you can track it down, um, are two that really fit very similar, I think. But the difference being Wicker Man's a lot stranger uh, than either of those. Uh, And, it really just, I'd been uh, watching The Equalizer as a kid and was a big fan of it in my household as the youngest of a bunch of boys. And he said the oldest boy, you know, was probably 17 when I was like 10 or whatever. So I'd watch whatever he was recording off TV every day and, the, and Equalizer was his favorite show. So I watched every episode of that before I came across uh, this movie. So uh, there's just something so uh, confidently made about this movie. It just feels like a film that was found somehow <laughs> you know and that it's hard to believe there's a production making this movie because it's just so unusual uh so it's basically the basic gist is uh edward woodward plays uh, sergeant neil howie and he um uh, is in england uh, as a sergeant and he flies off the coast of scotland to a place called summer isle and it's a little island self-contained island in 73 and he's gotten a letter uh, about a missing girl uh, but it was directly written to him. Uh, her name's Rowan Morrison, and uh, you'll hear the name a million times when you watch it. And as he gets the island, what's unusual is uh, everyone denies that she even exists, and from school to every place, but they do it in ways that are really strange. And everyone seems kind of um, 
like it's like an island of simpletons almost that's how it comes off to him anyway but then there's just really weird things like you know he checks into a uh, the local taverns motel for the night and the uh, bar owner's daughter is Britt Eklund, who's just, you know, at the height of her uh, gorgeousness. And, you know, it's very much implied. Everyone sings a song about how, you know, she's the local uh, the local piece and, you know, you're going to enjoy tonight kind of thing. And he's just he's a very puritanical Christian uh, detective. And that's why this movie is so interesting. It, uh, and, and the part Danny actually writes about this is perfect. I'll get to in a second. And he then meets uh, the part that I find super fascinating uh, is he meets uh, Christopher Lee's character, who plays Lord Summerall, who's kind of leading what starts to open itself up to you realizing it's a cult, uh, a film, literally a cult, um, a film about cults, uh, a religious cult or sect probably is more apt. And he kind of gives his uh, version of uh, the difference in, in their belief system. And I, I don't want to ruin this one, so I don't want to say too much because I know we think everyone's seen it, but I do think The Wicker Man's a movie that might be still under some people's radar, and I, if I can bring you to it, I will be more than happy. But I will say it has, you know, in my opinion, maybe the best. Between this and Don't Look Now, I'd say they're the two endings that most shocked me in watching movies that I wasn't prepared for, having not known. This is both both pre-internet, so there was nothing I knew about them watching these two movies where I was just like, whoa, like these are movies that go all the way and so uh and i think this the, the ending i mean danny perry's uh <laughs> the part i read if you haven't seen this movie you might want to miss that because for all i know he's going to spoil it but uh yeah it's just you know it's just a tremendous atmospheric strange you really really are placed with the character because you are as much an outsider as he is and you don't understand what's going on around you because there's a strange mystery and um you know it's, it's not going well for uh sergeant howie uh, as it goes um <laughs> anyway huge fan of this movie i've got a original poster of it that i'm you know as a prized possession just big big, big fan uh, I assume you you dig this movie. I do. It's definitely one of the early cult movie discoveries that I found from the books, and that made me help me understand what a cult movie is. You know, literally in this one. In this case, <laughs> rare, rare that they're actually about cults. Yeah. Hold on. There's a part of this that I am looking for. Okay, this is good stuff in here. Most horror films are about the triumph of Christianity over evil. Vampire films are a good example, as we see evil retreat in the presence of a cross. Some recent films, The Omen is a prime example, have shown evil to be victorious in our decadent world, but they are the minority. A few films, like Val Luton and Jacques Tournier's I Walk With a Zombie, show both Christianity and belief in other gods, voodooism, paganism, as having validity. The Wicker Man is the one film in which both Christianity and paganism are shown to be impotent. We neither believe Howie's contention that he will be resurrected, nor Lord Summerisle's that Howie will be reincarnated. We neither believe that the blood sacrifice will bring about a successful crop the following year, nor that Lord Summerisle will be punished for committing such a sin, uh, except possibly by the villagers if the crops fail again. The Wicker Man, said Christopher Lee in Cinefantastic, is not an attack on contemporary religion, but a comment on <coughs> its strengths as well as its weakness, its fallibility. It points out that it can be puritanical and still not always come out on top. I love that passage shows that this dude understands the movies he's watching and he's filing them together because like touching on uh, the Luton films and just jumping around by looking at the context of just religion and this and people need to understand that these mo- these books he's writing them before he can even 
like watch them multiple times and rewind you know they're just for the most part these were written where he would have had to go to theaters or maybe maybe by the second book he he had them on vhs but uh it's i don't know i think that's a perfect uh summary of what really you, you can walk away with from this movie yeah no i do love his ability to tie things together with older films disparate movies that you wouldn't think would necessarily go together he just has an uncanny ability to do that and that is another reason i love it and that's another reason i think the show is our show is what it is 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 that kind of thinking is definitely something we like to try and do and um i think it's fun and if you're a hammer fan uh, this is chris lee's best performance period like i mean he's great and all the films but this is and he called it his best performance it just gives him a chance to do something else a little more um natural and i just i think it really works because it's creepy without being creepy you know it's creepy in terms of the ideas but they don't play it creepy they play it like people who believe and that and true belief is the scariest of all things yeah it's it's definitely unforgettable that one um yeah my number four is definitely a favorite and i forgot how much I mean, I don't know if I'd go quite so far as to call it a handshake, but man, I really, I was really blown away by this rewatch of Vanishing Point mm-hmm. from 1971. Name, Kowalski. Occupation, driver. Transporting a supercharged Dodge Challenger from Denver to San Francisco. Background, Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Former stock and bike racer. Former cop, dishonorably discharged. Now he uses speed to get himself up to get himself gone. Everybody's after Kowalski. Because you think we're queers. For one reason or another. Is there something I can do for you? Well, like what? Like anything you want. Everybody wants a piece of his hide. Maybe kill somebody. Maybe stole that big dude here. Maybe both. They want to get him and put him away. But they'll have to catch him first. So fun. Yeah, it's and it, it inspired me. I'm actually doing a thing now where I'm <laughs> this month uh, for November. I'm calling it Carvember. I'm watching a bunch of car movies. That Vanishing Point kind of got me started on. I watched Vanishing Point, then I watched Need for Speed. I watched Overdrive, Redline Seven Thousand, and whatnot. And um, this one is like it's kind of like an Easy Rider, but I like it more than I like Easy Rider. I mean, we've talked about some other movies being like that, and it, but it's not like that. It's weird. It's like, it feels like it's of definitely of the same era, and mm-hmm. it's, it's really close on the heels of Easy Rider, but it's basically about a guy who uh, is a car delivery driver, um, and he's got a history that we see sort of flash back throughout the movie. But he, he has been given the assignment to drive a white Dodge Challenger which became iconic because of this movie. Across the country, he has to get to California. I forget where he is when he starts, but it's he's got like 15 hours. He's got some ridiculously short amount of time that he can... It'd be very difficult to do it. But he gets some speed, and he decides to go ahead and do it without sleep, and it's not exactly clear why he's doing it, which I kind of like, but it becomes he becomes kind of a movement onto himself. He becomes an outlaw hero because of um, his uh, outrunning the cops, which he does in multiple states, and he gets himself into sort of a manhunt situation and uh, becomes sort of notorious 
in the area that he's running via certain news outlets, I think, but definitely through this radio station, which is run by a blind black DJ played by Cleavon Little, who goes by the name Super Soul. And there goes the challenger, being chased by the blue, blue meanies on wheels, the vicious traffic squad cars after our known driver, the super driver of the Golden West. The police numbers are getting closer, closer, closer to our soul hero in his soul mobile. They're gonna get him, smash him, rip the and it's a really interesting movie because it's it obviously plays on a you know an absolutely literal level um but then there's again that existential stuff I, I don't know why i'm such a sucker for that but there's an existential element to it there's a mythical mysterious almost supernatural element to it because at the beginning we see the car coming up on this roadblock which is caused by two bulldozers and then we flash back two days earlier and the events that we've seen kind of shift by the end of the movie but yeah it's a really interesting thing that Kowalski is the name of the driver he's played by Barry Newman so many films are uh, you could close your eyes and it's a radio show it's like television you know and I said this is this could be really something very very different and very very unique and uh, that was the, actually the reason I, I chose to do that because I had, you know, done this film about a lawyer who a Harvard graduate and this kind of stuff. And this was a very, very different kind of thing, you know, the, the, the guy with the, the rebel, the, the anti-hero. This is, yeah, so I enjoyed doing that very much. Yeah. He's got kind of a Elliot Gould, Long Goodbye vibe. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy that. Just, definitely. just physically, not, not his, his character is uh, a little different, but he, he's, he's like, he does feel like kind of an outlaw hero. Like it, there's something really terrific. I could also imagine the car from a uh, Tulane blacktop just like going past in the background. Well, and that's that would have been I... the best thing ever. <laughs> and the Repo Man car as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> they should all connect in a universe. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe it's a bit on the nose, but I, but I would definitely say a double between this and Tulane blacktop. You know, this two existential car road movies would be pretty great you know yeah, i think both... the direct difference is the directions the oh yeah the directors are so different but totally they're, they're yeah really, serafian serafian's i mean he's definitely going for something interesting and he pulls it off but monty's obviously on a whole other level you know um and neither film has a lot of dialogue both have a lot of driving it's just a, a film that gives you a great sense of speed and the open road. There's lots of beautiful shots of this Dodge Challenger speeding through, you know, speaking of John Ford, they're like John Ford-esque, you know, Western vistas. So that's a really cool, there's definitely a, like I said, the outlaw element. There's a Western element to it, um, which is sort of part of the passage I'll read from Danny in a minute. Uh, it was shot by John A. Alonzo, who shot Chinatown, Harold Maud, and Scarface. Yeah. So it looks good. And I just love that Kowalski has decided to sort of take this task on for the heck of it to start with. And then at the end, I don't know, it's unclear. Like I've listened to the director's commentary and I don't want, I will definitely not spoil the ending, but he has a take on it that while I totally see it, I, I kind of like to just riff on the ending myself. And I, maybe it'll be one of those. It's definitely one of those movies that, that ends in a sort of ambiguous way that was really, I think, appealing to a lot of the counterculture. I mean, for multiple reasons in the case of this movie. I mean, he's he's a very anti-establishment guy. But I think they were looking, a lot of stoner-type moviegoers were looking for the end of 2001. They were looking for a movie that was kind of a head trip kind of thing. 
And so this movie kind of goes that route. But yeah, I, I feel like Kowalski reminds me a little bit of Han Solo in his vest and his white shirt. Mm, it's yeah. probably not an influence, you know, but George Lucas is known to be a, a serious gearhead. So I would be highly surprised if he didn't see Vanishing Point before 1977. But who knows? Um, I guess Richard Serafian originally wanted Gene Hackman for the role. But the powers that be at Fox wanted Barry Newman because I think he was on a TV show at the time. But it's crazy, obviously. This was pre-French Connection, so nobody knew who Gene Hackman was really at the time. And he he couldn't... That's a really interesting, different movie. But I'm glad we have Scarecrow instead, um, which is not a car movie, but it's certainly another existential movie with Hackman. Yeah, one of the best. Yeah, so um, it's it's similar in sort of structural elements to something like Wild Strawberries where you have a man sort of flashing back on his life while he's taking this journey because you start to see bits of his past. He was, a, you know, he was an ex-cop. There's a scene where he stops his partner from sort of molesting a, a junkie girl and, you, you know, sort of it's implied that he lost his job because of that. He's an ex- That's like how we met. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Remember those Thank days? God I stopped you. Remember those days? <laughs> those days on the force. Boy, um, yeah. Oh man, now I wish we were cops. That would be cool. <laughs> Jesus, we are cinema cops. We are oh, cinema police. Yes, there you go. Um, but yeah, so you get a sense of his history. You know, an ex-girlfriend that that uh, passed away, and um, some other things that you start to get more of a sense of him as the story goes, and I like that. But it's just there's really not a lot of dialogue to it, and there's a lot of driving, and uh, I just I don't know I love I love that about it. Uh, Cleavon Little is great. He's this is three years before Blazing Saddles. I think it's his first movie. And th- there's also a dude who feels just like Walter Houston out of straight out of the sort of straight out of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, and it's got a fun funk rock soundtrack that keeps it moving. Some surreal moments. Uh, Charlotte Rampling plays a hitchhiker in the UK version of the movie where she rolls a giant joint and they get high in the car and stuff. Anyway, uh, it's it's just one that I really like. I don't know why. I can't even qualify it. But I have a couple passages I might read if I can quickly enough. Let me see. What did Danny say about this? He says, his opening bit about it I, I like a lot. He says, um, we return to those thrilling days of yesteryear, not way back to the days of the Lone Ranger when Grant was president and the nation was rebuilding after the Civil War, but to an equally distinct era that came 100 years later. Of course, we remember them as the Dick Nixon and Delaney and Bonnie and Friends years, when the country itself was split asunder by an aloof president and an unpopular war, and the dropout counterculture was united by drugs, music, and anti-establishment bias, and abstract anti-materialistic philosophies. It's then that another lone, lone stranger rides defiantly through the West, not on a white charger, but a white challenger, Dodge. The lawmen of the territory do not trust him. Maybe he killed somebody. Because, quite frankly, he gives every every indication of being an outlaw. For instance, he moves so fast, it's clear that he doesn't want anyone to see his face. Who is this mysterious man who always leaves in a cloud of dust, just like the Lone Ranger used to do? They don't know that he used to be a cop, too. Just as the Lone Ranger didn't let on that he had been a Texas Ranger, the Lone Ranger gave up his John Reed identity and his past when he donned his mask, and the Lone Stranger considers Kowalski, the man he was, an ex-cop, ex-war hero, ex-professional race car driver, to be dead, and his past irrelevant. Um, So that's one part I like. And then the other part is more personal for Danny. He says, Kowalski drives like a tourist guide who missed the last rest stop, 
but the scenery we glimpse is indeed breathtaking, and the camera work from fast-moving vehicles and helicopters is stunning. What I like best about the film is its depiction of a coast-to-coast network of weirdos, dropouts, and misfits ready to help wayfaring strangers. The characters Serafian gives us aren't real, but there really was such a network back then. You could travel cross-country and in most places find such people who'd freely offer you food, drink, drugs if you wanted them, a place to crash, and the addresses of their friends in towns along your route. To me, Vanishing Point is a document of its times. It is itself the prototype of the youth cult films made back then, and it also shows a finer aspect of the 60s, 70s counterculture for which I have nostalgic feelings. So, yeah, both of those things, there is a sense of hope to it. It's politically charged in a way that I think makes it kind of evergreen in some respects. I think now is just as good a time as ever to to be anti-establishment. Um, yeah, fuck the man never goes away, but it does. It depends who the man is. Usually, it you shifts. Know? But but this feels like you know it's it. You definitely feel it coming out of that Nixon era. And I'm not saying we're in a Nixon era right now, but I feel like you know there's a lot of mistrust and there's a lot of unrest. And so it still could plays. be worse. Yeah, <laughs> it could be worse than Nixon era. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. We're not we're not we're not done with our era yet. <laughs> it's true. It's just getting started. But yeah, so yeah. this kind of movie sometimes can seem dated. But for me, it still works. And that existential stuff, as I get older, I guess I really have gotten more reflective about things. So these movies catch me off guard in a, in a very positive way every time I come back to them. Yeah, I think we're. I think that's interesting. I think we're very similar with the existential stuff. I think we're both drawn to it. Uh, I was from 21 onwards, you know, <laughs> and, and it hasn't changed. It, I it, took even a though longer. you put down roots and stuff, you have more to live for uh, or to, like, you understand your, your obvious place in the world, like, you know, with, if you're a parent or anything like that. But that doesn't change the existential side if you're not a firm uh, believer uh, in religion or some higher power that could help guide you. You have to question what is it all about, yep. you know? Absolutely. Uh, good stuff. My next one is if we're doing romance, this is my favorite romance of all time. This is my number one when it comes to romance. And by romance, I don't necessarily mean happy, happy time. That's what I love about the romance as a genre is um, – you know, I'm not a big rom-com guy. I'm not a big, um, you know, romantic comedy, even though I actually do. I, I, I say that. They're not the movies I seek out, but they, I, I tend to always actually kind of enjoy a good romantic comedy uh, like anyone. But uh, romance, is, which sounds like it has a positive connotation. Actually, if you look at romance uh, films in general, I think uh, the majority of them have negative or heart ripping <laughs> endings and often are um, tragic. You know, a lot of them. Uh, Wuthering Heights by William Wyler from 1939. Don't you see what he's been doing? He's been using you to be near me, to smile at me behind your back, to try to rouse something in my heart that's dead. You can't. Heathcliff's not a man, but something dark and horrible to live with. Do you imagine, Catherine, that I don't know why you're acting so? Because you love him. Oh, Heathcliff, you must not do this villainous thing. She hasn't harmed you. You have. Then punish me. I'm going to. When I take her in my arms, when I kiss her, when I promise her life and happiness. Oh, Heathcliff, if there's anything human left in you, don't do this. From the Emily Bronte book uh, is, to me, just a total masterpiece. It was a movie I wasn't expecting to uh, be knocked over. It's, I'm surprised I even watched it, to be honest, at the time I watched it. I think it came on TCM years ago, I don't know, six, seven years ago. 
Uh, it's not something I don't usually seek out classical literature adaptations. I, I sometimes will see that, you know, I'll see them. I saw a great uh, Jane Eyre recently, you know, a few years back. I just think this is one of the best movies ever made, period. I think uh, a lot of it's not just Weiler, but the producers uh, who really, you know, managed to get this uh, onto the screen. But it's uh, Merle Oberon uh, as the uh, Kathy and Laurence Olivier as uh, Heathcliff. Uh, these kind of doomed lovers and it starts you know when they're they're kids and he's uh kind of the poor poor kid at that point and uh they are on the the moors i guess that's scotland i i can't i can't recall and they have a they kind of play in their imagination and believe they're like in a castle and they're kind of you know young children who feel close and like a typical romance you know they grow up and they change but they still feel passionately about each other and still have this like deep love and they still use their imaginations but then slowly their difference uh, places in society start to creep in and she realizes she even though she loves him wants to be more part of society and they start uh, to kind of come apart and then he goes away and I'm, I'm there's Bronte nerds, you know, or Bronte <laughs> nerds who are going to go crazy at my. Uh, and also, the movie was pretty loose, and a lot of its adaptation actually loses like a third of the book towards the end. He goes away. She uh, she actually uh, goes towards David Niven, and who can promise her, you know, who owns the. Uh, what is the name of the place? My God, I don't even remember the the manner in which they they're at. And uh, Heathcliff comes back later, and now he's incredibly rich, and he basically tries to it becomes quite a it, i mean it could also fit into a revenge film in a really sad way because he ends up uh you know one of the least happy humans you've ever seen on screen trying to make her feel you know pain for her her decision to you know be with this other man and he ends up uh, being with her sister just to get to her and it, it it burns so hot between them that it also is kind of disturbing and it also has a ghostly quality because uh, at the start of the film you uh, also realize they made a promise that as she uh, dies that she would come back to haunt him he wants her to haunt him even if it means madness just so they can be together you know Uh, so it's got this just an incredibly romantic tinge to them in the idea that romance or true soulmates could exist um, for good or bad and that uh, the pain you might have to go through and because I'm always going to be on point through this, I realized this is the perfect pairing for possession. This ah, is the move. I finally found it. Nice. Because for a long time, I was like, oh, I've seen from marriage. But then I realized that's so bleak. This makes more sense because this is nothing like possession, but it has that same element that you're seeing the relationship. If it, if it runs that hot and it's that good, it can also go that bad uh, and burn the person that you once loved and whilst it's you know radically different i think those two would probably be be very interesting watch wuthering heights first i think and then see the kind of flip side uh in possession but it's it's a it's a really remarkable uh movie too just in terms of its staging elegance uh william wyler was famous for doing hundreds of takes and driving the actors fucking crazy uh, olivier many times would just be like why do you need it again and wyler would just go well just do it better then you know and it definitely <laughs> it, it, you know he was really exhausting to these uh, very professional theater actors, but I think the results are, it's just something. You just feel it. It's kind of like, um, you know, one of my other favorites from this season, Leave Her to Heaven. I feel like it's, uh, I mean, it's more romantic than that, obviously, but it has also contains some of that darkness. And I think, I love a good romance that also has a dark 
quality to it. I have not seen this movie. It was almost going to be one of my first time watches. It was very That's close. That's one to do with the do watch it with the wife. Yeah. I think uh, it's 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 just a, it's quite an an amazing film and you just I don't know, you almost you're almost jealous that people got to feel that intensely about anything. I'm not the Kathy that was. Can you understand that? I'm somebody else. I'm another man's wife and he loves me. And I love him. If he loved you with all the power of his soul for a whole lifetime, he couldn't love you as much as I do in a single day. Not he, not the world. Not even you, Kathy, can come between us. You know, it's, I mean, of course it's a movie and a book, but there's something kind of beautiful about that, even if, even if the effects are, uh, you know, hurt a lot of people in between. Um, here's a little part uh, that he writes. Um, there's much, and also it's shot by Greg Tolan, so, you know, Citizen Kane, uh, cinematographer, uh, which we're about to talk about. Uh, there is much in Wuthering Heights that makes it superior viewing. Greg Tolan's photography is outstanding. His close-ups diffused with soft candlelighting effects reveal the difference between stars and us common folk. As usual, Tolan used deep focus. Weiler keeps doors between rooms open so sets have epic proportions. Together, Weiler and Tolan properly turn the manor at Wuthering Heights into a haunted house. Bleak, brooding, oppressive, dark with anger and hatred. Heathcliff, with those mastiffs by his feet and the ghost of his dead love dancing in his delirious brain, could very well be played by Vincent Price in one of those Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe films of the 60s. The tumultuous atmosphere with electrical storms, heavy rains, and driving snowstorms perfectly defines the term wuthery but too often the atmosphere conveys conveys characters emotions that wouldn't otherwise be evident from their acting alone for instance if some of the particularly heavy scenes had been played on well-lit sets instead of on shadowy spooky ones they would not have worked this is unfortunate because in the novel the characters themselves are forces of nature perhaps even more than they are human beings Olivier and Oberon are a wonderfully romantic couple and they're seen in their make-believe castle in which Kathy and Heathcliff express their love for one another. Kathy says that inside she will never change and they embrace is one of the most romantic bits in cinema history. Significantly, it was original to Hector MacArthur. Oberon is surprisingly good in the film and Olivier is better. His lines often make no sense, but his delivery has such strength that we tend to overlook this fact. Yeah, he just you know he get he gets it and 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 he's never one to overly just lavish praise on a film. He'll always find something, you know, to also uh, look at the flip side of which I always respect in his stuff, even when I disagree, you know. But it is a really moody piece. It's like uh you know it's a it's a haunted, doomed love story, which uh, I'm a big fan of those. I gotta see it. Next up for me is uh, the Parallax View. Yeah. From 1974. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. What I know is I need a good alias and I need a good idea. My life is in danger just being here. Whoever's behind this is in the business of recruiting assassins. I think I got some of their entrance exams. Congratulations, Richard. You've had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. Another movie that really really got me the first time I saw it. I think I had seen All the President's Men before this, and I had liked it, but in retrospect, this is this is directed, of course, by Alan J. Pakula, part of kind of a, a paranoia trilogy from the 70s. So you have Clute in 1971, which I've 
brought up on the show before, which I think is great and genuinely creepy. As I said at the time, mm-hmm. and that episode still that it 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 had me, and maybe I said this on the show, but it had a similar effect on me to it follows in some ways mm. in terms of the sort of looking over your shoulder paranoia that I don't know, both films got me in a certain totally different emotional and psychological things, but somehow a similar effect. Um, so Clute 1971 parallax 1974, all the Predators men in 1976, an amazing trilogy of paranoid movies who, whose influence can still be felt today in things like Captain America Winter Soldier and and such. It is one of the great paranoid thrillers ever as far as I'm concerned and one that really captures as good as JFK did sort of the the machinery behind and theories behind JFK's assassination although they don't explicitly, you know, they they have a they have a bunch of fake uh, candidates in the beginning of the movie, the first couple scenes. Basically, Warren Beatty plays a, a very ambitious reporter who doesn't quite get into this senatorial party for this this particular senator who seems to be being groomed for potential presidential uh, hope. And he almost gets in, but he doesn't get in. And it's at the top of the Space Needle in Seattle, and the senator's assassinated. And the guy who killed him is chased up onto the roof of the Space Needle and ends up falling off and dying. So they can't, you know, get any answers from him. But immediately you see that there's another suspicious character in the Space Needle at the time. And it's unclear if it's a second shooter or what it is. But so basically Warren Beatty gets in way over his head when he starts investigating this senator's assassination. But more about people that happen to witness the assassination that have suddenly started dying. And one in particular is a reporter friend of his who is played by Paul Apprentice and who denied him, you know, help in trying to get into the actual event that day. But she comes back to him, you know, months later and is totally a wreck about the the people that have died. She's got all these newspaper clippings of all these. She's like, I'm next. And so it kind of goes from there. Um, one of the things you sort of come to find out is that basically there's a corporation that is in the business of recruiting assassins and Beatty gets a hold of one of their entrance exams and it's super creepy. It's like, it's deliberately looking for like really antisocial fucked up personalities, the kind of people that they can manipulate and that, you know, would be okay with killing people. And it's, well, and it's, it's like a six and a half minute visual montage. That's a whole other, imagery. yeah, that's a yeah. whole other thing. Yeah. When he actually oh. gets involved Oh, the, the mental, yeah, the mental training thing, yeah. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But yeah, it's it's really, really interesting movie from the point of view of like how creepy it is and how kind of realistic it seems even now as far as like the creepy underpinning goings on of, you know, maybe not the CIA or the FBI. I don't know. Maybe it's outside that stuff. But it definitely feels real. It feels like something that that could really be the case. I guess, I guess I'm just such a believer in some really supreme evil in the world that I just am open to this idea. <laughs> so I don't know. But it's definitely a a movie that just absolutely caught my attention. I I wasn't a giant Warren Beatty fan at the time. I thought he was okay, but I hadn't seen the right movies, and it was one that totally sold me on him a hundred percent. You know, because he he definitely stretches himself past that sort of leading man kind of scenario. You know, because his character's a little bit of a loser, and he's forced to p- play even more of a desperate, creepy guy. And 
I wonder, and weirdly, I wonder if it's closer to who he really is, because the paranoia and the political stuff is clearly what he's really obsessed by in real life. You know, yeah. he's ob- obsessed by politics, and you know, I don't know. I just wonder. It, it is. It's a great role, and it's a movie. I think one of the reasons it wasn't on people's list so much is because it was really hard to find because i'd seen most of pecula's work he was like one of those first directors i really like got into his work and could not for the life of me find that movie for years it took a much longer to track down parallax view so i don't know what the deal distribution wise was yeah it's still not on blu-ray it's on dvd uh you can get it on voodoo and amazon and everything like that but yeah it's not you know super easy to find necessarily um it has one of my favorite expository scenes and it's where Beatty goes to visit this character played by Kenneth Mars, who is in the producers and stuff. And they have this whole scene where he's like running, uh, the train, the kitty train concession at some amusement mm. park, but it's like a low level amusement park. Uh, and so they're sitting on a kid's train going around and he's telling him about, you know, cause he's an ex ex CIA agent or something. And he's telling him about some really heavy duty shit, but they're on this kid's train riding around this track, and it's really great. I'm always like, I'm gonna steal that if I ever write a movie. I, I don't know, <laughs> whatever scene needs some exposition, they're gonna do it on a kid's train. Um, <laughs> it's shot by Gordon Willis, who's one of the great cinematographers of all time. So that the adds of darkness. Yeah, yeah it's, there's a lot it. of great uses of darkness, including some really wonderful wide shots of this giant like council. It looks like the Supreme Court but it's more like these councils that are assigned to look into these assassinations and they always seem to come away with a we have found no conspiracy or no evidence of conspiracy kind of verdicts in this really creepy way. But yeah, so it looks great and it's just one of my favorite films of this period, favorite thrillers. I like it probably more than Three Days of the Condor, which is a similar kind of thing. But I think anyway, it's darker than Three Days of the Condor. Oh, definitely, yeah. Danny says... Alan Pakula's The Parallax View falls into that suspense spy horror subgenre that caters to us paranoids who are sure there are active conspiracies in and out of government geared to undermine the democratic political process and root out slash ruin, set up, dispose of various individuals, business competitors, political opposition, charismatic leaders, those who know too much, other such paranoia films with Political overtones include Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 56 and 78, The Manchurian Candidate, Costa Z, and Missing, Executive Action, The Documentary, The Second Gun, Chinatown, The Conversation, Three Days of the Condor, Bakula's All the President's Men, Winter Kills, and Blowout. Parallax received extremely mixed reviews when it was released. Some critics thought it exploited the assassination wave hysteria and Watergate climate. But through the years, it has been one film that comes up constantly during conversations in which people theorize about the John Kennedy assassination, even though executive action deals specifically with that event. No film more believably details... It all seems so simple, how a conspiratorial network can pull off political assassinations, get away scot-free, and leave a fall guy, the proverbial social misfit, to take the rap. So... He's totally right. It's really one of the best movies in that capacity, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that sequence I was talking about, um, where he's kind of getting, it's meant to kind of maybe brainwash or see what you're, it basically pairs images, it shows you a series of images. It could be like a white family and a black family, an image of Thor, uh, and it starts to jumble them all up, and it tries to almost like position you as like a, almost a white nationalist, which I think is very interesting, that sequence in current America, where really you see the rise of that. You see 
we're seeing the the rise of a white national uh, nationalist identity, which is you know pretty frightening given that it's. 40 years later from when this movie's happening and it feels very um you know very topical to now i think that sequence i always i always show that particular sequence to students uh, about uh, ideology in movies how you can get across an ideology you know with just you know still pictures montage. Yeah, yeah totally yeah, it's, it's and it's that's definitely like you say that montage is is more impactful now than ever so uh, that's yeah. and, and i noticed that this time in rewatching it for sure and i mean and it's so um experimental because it's like six and a half minutes of screen time so you literally have a guy sit down we have a star like warren Beatty sit down in a darkened room and then do and you're just looking at these images for the next six minutes i mean so it's kind of doing it to the audience not just the character you yeah. know so it's yeah it's very interesting yeah. Uh, yeah that's a good pick i haven't seen it in a very long time but it made a big impact when i did uh and pecula man you know just one of those directors is not talked about nearly enough like i don't know if it's because his last couple films like the devil's own and stuff like were just kind of you know fairly um routine or something if that like maybe the legend of this director has been forgotten but there's a period where he's as good as anyone you know for sure um my next one is um a great uh and beguiling uh, australian film called the picnic at hanging rock you must learn to love someone else apart from me sarah i won't be here much longer the girl the boy the school the rock fragments of a mystery from a summer long ago good morning girls good morning mrs Appleby. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely dangerous. And you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. Uh, directed by Peter Weir, 1975. Uh, on my way home from work two nights ago, I saw that the Criterion sale was on, so I pulled over, knowing that I was going to talk about this one and bought it. Um, 50% off still. And hadn't seen it for a long time, but it had made a big impression. And watching it again this time, I liked it uh, maybe even more. Um, it's a very simple story. Uh, it's basically three. St- you know, there's uh, a school for the girls, a very strict uh, school for girls in like 1900. It's Valentine's Day, and they are going to go on an excursion to this place called Hanging Rock. And it's uh, you know it's a big deal for them because they're stuck inside. And the opening sequence of this film is just very voyeuristically looking at all these different girls and how they how they dress and act and how they all watch each other. And it's just so naturalistic. It's really kind of stunning. Um, one of the best sequences I think of his career and uh, they all go as a group of girls to this uh, this place and uh, three of them uh, go up a hill while the rest uh, go up to the top of the rock which they've been kind of informed not to to go explore and it goes very strange basically 
they're never seen again. Uh, well, two of them and, and one of the older woman who looks after them, who eventually goes and follows them, you know, never see it, but she does and she disappears too. So altogether, three people are never found again. One of them is found later in the movie and, and has some of the most memorable scenes when she comes back. And it's a movie that's very much of two halves. The first half is the half in most people's minds when they think of this movie, which is this absolutely esoteric, uh, cinematic, Power, the power of mystery in a movie and why it's just so fascinating and almost almost science fictiony or horror ish even though it's not and as these these there's just an ethereal beauty to the one girl the main uh, female uh, who early on in the film kind of tells her roommate you know you gotta you know you gotta start loving someone else because I'm not going to be around much longer and even though it seems like she's talking about because she's going to be moving on to college or something you then get the feeling that there's something linking her to going up this rock and disappearing and you know it could be anything from alien abduction to uh, some sort of sexual climax that has you know taken them away or a parallel dimension or they were uh, you know dragged away and abused by uh, somebody we'll never know so the second half of this movie uh basically is everyone the effect that that disappearance has on these other characters and there's a couple guys who are there that day who are watching them you know from afar and so you've got their perspective and you have all the people all the girls back at the school and it's a purposefully frustrating movie in the second half because weird doesn't give you any answer at all it's completely open uh, and completely unsolvable, just like, and you know, it was kind of legendary because a lot of people thought it was a true story and didn't know there's still conjecture how much of it was based on, you know, something, some sort of truth from the woman who wrote it to, because uh, this was a book first. It, it's just like if you're looking for that, like the perfect kind of Elric movie where you're like, oh, <laughs> where I always talk about something like, why you need to have mystery in a movie, why you have to have some things that are unresolved, and and the absolute power of not giving all your secrets away because if this movie had given a clear definition no one would be talking about it now they'd be like oh, i had some really beautiful moments and then it ends the reason people still think about this movie now is because it doesn't give you those uh, those things and that some movie a lesser movie would be frustrating and you would just hate it and a lot of people did of course at the time but instead this one gets under your skin and i think what happens is it opens you to project into it so you do have endings you do know what happens to them you have your version of what happened to them in your mind based on how you kind of feel or maybe what you think um it is deeply sexual that's for sure like all the imagery they disappear into uh you know like tight uh orifice like patterns of them as vaginal shapes uh, that they're going into but they're also going up the mighty power of this giant rock the kind of most phallic and grotesquely misshapen image and, and and at one point they just like fall asleep under it like without the power to you know it's just very dramatic and you don't but you don't understand it's not like a traditional science fiction where it would show you something to be scared of it's just nature and it's really unusual and then the power of what it does to the people who are left behind is really strange and uh, you know a couple of them become super obsessed one of the young guys in the film which i did not know uh from when i used to start a long time ago is a very young john jarrett who would go on to become mick the killer in wolf creek uh but in this he's like you know very handsome 20 you know aussie guy uh which was really surprising um the the lineage i would place this in, and i was watching it again i was like okay this movie 
it's got some connection to black narcissists, like for sure, where there's this a hypnotic power of woman altogether, um, sexual, uh, you know, uh, restraint and uh, uh, being held back, and what that that opens this kind of floodgate, um, almost like the uh, Salem, uh, what's the uh, uh, Crucible or something like that, the play. Uh, but then the two the two films that I just realized are just incredibly influenced by this are Sofia Coppola's Virgin Suicides and The Beguiled. Both of those. Uh, movies I realize completely owe their the feeling uh, to this movie, which I had never thought about until this viewing. Uh, it's really a unique movie. It's not going to be for everyone, but it it just I always liked it a lot, and it, you know it's, it's part of the ushering in the Australian new wave that was a big influence on me. But man, watching it again, I just was like, oh, this is one of the great movies. And Peter Weirs. You know, and he was very pretty young when he made this one. Uh, it's you know, it's it's a, it's a bit of a masterpiece. I actually uh, had a found a clip of Gene Siskel talking about this towards the very end of his life. It was it was in the '90s, just before he died. You can actually tell from his voice he's not as well, but him and Ebert were talking about it, and I thought he he summed up really well. So I wanted to uh, you know play that just briefly. Girls, you're not going to know what happened in this picture because we're never told. But I guarantee, after it's over, you will be thinking about this movie for a long, long time. And you will be able to recall the mood of it, the sense of being there. And it's really, it's using all the non-narrative powers of film. Yes, it is. It uses music beautifully without, you know, having a sense of being ominous without being obviously so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, handheld camera work to place us in the location. It's, it's just wonderful. I mean, I, you know, the, the story is not the story. It's the mood is the story of being there, and he does a magnificent job. It's one of my favorite films simply because of that. I like films that, you know, don't tell a story. Yeah, well, it has the whole um, uh, specific realistic detail of the investigation, the search, uh, the repercussions, the scandal, and yet at the center is this enormous mystery that is never... When you think of this picture... I don't think you think of the investigation. I think of being near the right rock. there, right there exactly. on that rock, because it's like a summer day. You see yeah. the insects, and then maybe a tree, a tree limb crossing in front of you, or something. Yeah, yeah. and then absolutely and then right. this enormous mystery. And then, uh, in terms of Danny, because yeah, this is just—it's it's an unusual movie, and I, it's the kind of movie. I mean, maybe, I don't want to say it's like Mother, because it's almost the opposite of Mother in the sense of Mother has the subtlety of, you know, a sledgehammer, but it's going for something in the same way as Mother uh, in a lot of ways. And I could see why that would polarize for sure, you know, an audience. So, you know, in that sense, maybe there is some sort of similarity. Uh, Hold on, here's what uh, our friend Danny would say. Those chilling scenes on the day of the picnic, uh, made more ominous by George Zampier's panpipes, in which unknown primeval forces are at work and the rock formation seems to take on a sexual brutal life of its own are suitable to wear as Lindsay, who's the writer which is why they are so impressive only few directors nick rogue in the 70s walk about and terrence malick allow natural surroundings to dominate scenes as for viewers all who have walked into a strange natural environment especially at night and had the creepy sensation that the trees, bushes, rock, soil, and sky aren't happy about being disturbed. The films of Peter Weir are special. However, once Weir starts concentrating on the aftermath of the disappearances, we feel we've seen it all before. It's And and then he, uh, and just to paraphrase because I don't want to, it's a little too long, he really feels the first half of this movie is, you know, a masterpiece, and after that it becomes something that, you know, we've seen before. And I think he's right 
but watching it again, I realized that that's kind of the point, and it really is to feel the weight of their loss on all these other people to wonder who they were, what they were, and feel that kind of tragedy. So I totally get what he what his problems are with it, but I also maybe think now uh, I I like that. You know, I think it really works for the movie and the release from Criterion's crazy. It comes with like the book. It comes with like just tons of tons of stuff. Yeah, that's that's another one that I saw early on because of the book, and I remember being perplexed by it. You know, I think I was not quite ready for the. I'd certainly seen films that ended without answering all the questions, but I think I was still at a point where I found those more frustrating than enjoyable. Well, and the difference here is it it doesn't just not answer it. It gives you no clues. Yeah. So usually a movie like this gives you like 10. And that's one thing I think he says in his review. He's like, well, it would have been nice to have heard all the other characters, all their different theories about what happened. But instead, it literally gives you almost nothing. So you're like forced to like run them through in your head. But that's all you get. Uh, my get my gut says it's largely about sexuality. Like uh, one of the one of the essays I like was looking up readings on the movie and somebody was kind of more like, you know, it's all the repression and they moved on to a place of sexuality and adulthood so they can't come back and they can't tell you the, the other girls the secret because you need to find out for yourself if you're these these girls and you know that kind of a, a read fits pretty well but I you know it's always questionable whether um, Weir has a direct read. and I love if you look up quotes by Weir he's very he's very good about you know I like mystery and things it makes me keep thinking about them you know otherwise they're it's over you know it ends I asked a question I'd been told not to ask and that question that I'd been prepped by the publisher, he said, don't ask Lady Lindsay whether the story is true or not. Now, the book is introduced by a paragraph that says something like, whether this story is true or not, the characters involved are long since dead, so it hardly seems to matter. So it was obscure and tantalizing and implied that it was true. So I thought, whether I get the job or not, I, I must ask this question, otherwise it's a bad start, and I have to know. She has to, she has to tell me all her secrets. So I introduced the question over that coffee in that lovely um, room. Uh, that I, I said, uh, Lady Lindsay, I've been told not to ask you this, but is the story true? And she said, um, young man, I hope that you do not ask me the question again. And I said, that's fine, okay. And I said, well, I'll move to another difficult question and you may tell me that you're not going to answer this. But I said, I mean, do you think it's wide open what happened to these girls? I mean, in your mind, do you think they fell down a hole? Do you think, for example, they were abducted by aliens? And she said, any of the above. <laughs> yeah, I mean... That's the power of it. Well, I think as moviegoers, we've been trained to, to expect all the answers. Mm -hmm. You know, most movies give you all the answers for the most part. And you see... A happy ending and and so I think sometimes people are immediately annoyed by the fact that they see a movie that doesn't do that for them that they're either like well fuck that or it's the kind of movie like this where it just sticks with you for a really long time and you're forced to run it over and over in your head and try and figure it out and it just becomes a puzzle that's unsolvable that can either be gratifying or frustrating but yeah, I, I I think I think it's fascinating that this is the same director that did Fearless, which was brought up on the show, yeah, nineties cult episode. He's he's really an interesting guy in terms of, you know, again thematics and taking more uh, high minded ideas into his filmmaking. I, I think that's you know respectable and uh, admirable. Even Truman Show, which is a tonally couldn't be more different 
than Picnic at Hanging Rock, and yet the ideas you realize are, oh, they're kind of similar, like kind of, yeah, they're kind of dealing with similar ideas despite the different style. Yeah, he's a, he's a very, it's a shame. I looked him up on IMDb, and he hasn't, isn't listed as anything for the last few years, which is a shame. Yeah, he's he's one of the greats. Next up for me is, I don't know if I've talked about Ernst Lubitsch much on the show thus far, uh, but I do love I Lubitsch. Uh, I think if you haven't seen Trouble in Paradise another criterion definitely check that out it's a really I haven't seen it. yeah really great screwball but very clever like incredibly clever like more clever and, and i love Preston sturges and you could certainly see the similarities between the two and the influence that lewich likely had on sturges and whatnot but there's some really clever back and forth in trouble in paradise that i i think is just i don't know it it, it it definitely made him as a comedic voice stick with me. You know, he's like Billy Wilder in that way, just very conscious of script choices and turns of phrase and entendre and whatever. He's just really something, you know, one of those guys that you just go, wow, this is writing on a level that is really um, artful, you know? To be or not to be is truly an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy key to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not To Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirth-maker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy melodrama, enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. It's the picture everyone will want to see. And this particular story is daring in that it came out in 1942, and it's basically about the Nazi occupation, and it takes place during the Nazi occupation of Poland, and it has to do with an acting troupe that becomes kind of caught up in this Polish soldier's efforts to find a German spy that he's discovered, actually in a really interesting way, because the guy who is playing off as kind of a an altruistic gentleman who wants to help the Polish underground doesn't know who Carol Lombard's character is, and she is supposedly this really famous Polish actress and so this soldier uh, played by Robert Stack is immediately suspicious of the guy he's like well how can you because he is actually obsessed with Carol Lombard's character so part of you is like well he's just obsessed with her but then you think about it and you're like well maybe that is kind of an odd thing that this guy doesn't know who she anyway so it's really funny because it was written for and stars Jack Benny, who I've come to really enjoy over the past, well, since I discovered these books and basically since I saw this movie. I think Jack Benny was just a personality in the Looney Tunes cartoons occasionally for me and that's somebody I was aware of as a, you know, a, a big comedian of that period, but I didn't fully get it i didn't understand how talented and how funny he was and it's this movie has some similarities to 20th century the howard hawks movie Mm -hmm. so you have like a really egotistical actor at the center of it played by jack benny who is married to carol lombard and yet who is still totally insecure about his uh abilities as an actor and anyway they they become involved in this really interesting thing where they have to kind of set up certain scenes to try and trick this guy that they've found out as a spy and they want to stop him from giving away the names of the people in the Polish underground 
to the to the SS or to the Nazis, basically. And so there's a lot of great scenes of the actors playing German soldiers and and sometimes getting a little carried away. And uh, it's just really, again, incredibly clever. And Carol Lombard is, I mean, she's totally one of my favorite actresses of all time and is just effervescent and funny and gorgeous and so sharp in this movie and, and so the match for Jack Benny that she ends up upstaging him most of the time. The movie had a slight issue in that, A, like I said, came out in 1942. A lot of critics were offended that, and I'm sure some audience folk were offended that they were trying to make light of Nazis and genocide and, and things like that, is sort of played for humor. I mean, they're skewering them, but at the time, I think it was still really terrifying to a lot of people, and it was hard to laugh at. But I, I think it's the best possible way to approach this sort of thing. And it's it serves as propaganda, but in a really great way. I can't, I can't articulate. But um, the other problem about the movie is that Carol Lombard was killed in the, between the time the movie was made and when it was to come out. Mm. And um, she and Clark Gable were involved. One of my favorite episodes of You Must Remember This tells that whole story of the sort of last couple days of her life. And I found myself moved almost to tears to hear the story because Gable was completely destroyed mm. by her death. And, and so I think a lot of people had a love affair with her and it was hard for them, I think, to go and see her in a comedy like this around that time. So anyway, just another couple reasons why this movie might have gotten lost, but I think the writing is so strong and so clever, and it's so funny in parts that it transcends time. It is still incredibly relevant and political, again, especially for a movie from 1942. But yeah, it's just so well done. Uh, there's a great bit where the Polish soldier played by Robert Stack has been having these sort of clandestine meetings with Carol Lombard's character, and she's told him, I I think just to fuck with Jack Benny, she's told him to leave the theater during, they're doing Hamlet or whatever, and he has the to be or not to be speech. And so when he starts doing it, Robert Stack gets up to leave the theater and it becomes this running gag of Jack Benny being totally distracted and thrown off by the fact that somebody's walking out on his Hamlet speech. It's great. It's a great bit. But but ov- overall, just definitely an influence on, I think, something like Inglorious Bastards has little bits of this in it. And so it's definitely a movie that continues to be influential. But one where you watch it and you're like, Wow, a comedy that is a great World War II spy thriller that's funny and so many things tie together so well. It it really is one of those you'll watch and, and will either become one of your favorite movies or at least you'll be able to respect the craft of a great comic filmmaker and, you know, great casting of a couple icons, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I don't yeah, I haven't seen this one, so it's cool. It's cool. Um Danny says Paramount designed an upbeat publicity campaign for Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be, which it expected to be a huge hit, but it was dumped when star Carol Lombard was killed in a plane crash during a war bond selling tour two months prior to the picture's release. It was impossible to promote. When the film failed at the box office, Paramount execs alibied it was because audiences were too torn up by the tragic death of Hollywood's most beloved comedian to see her so soon in another picture, particularly a comedy. It seemed like a better explanation than Lubitsch has lost his touch, but just as suspect. It's more accurate that the majority of moviegoers stayed away because they considered a comedy set in Nazi-occupied Poland to be itself untimely. Some insisted that it could never be funny, even if the Nazis were pushed out of Poland. 
Cult films are often born in controversy, and few have caused such a rift among moviegoers as To Be or Not To Be did upon its release three years after Germany invaded Poland, three months after the United States entered World War II. So, again, some great context from Danny that gives you a sense of why a movie gets lost, mm. you know, and I think that's something I've always appreciated is you watch these great movies, you're like, what happened? What? How did this not connect? And then you get a few details about the time it came out or a release schedule or a poor marketing, whatever, and it gives you a greater sense of how wonderful it is when a good film finds an audience. It's one thing to make a good film amidst all the troublesome issues of trying to make a movie, to, to get the movie to come out good, but then for it to find its audience, to be properly marketed, or to get the right word of mouth. That stuff is so dependent on the time it comes out and circumstance and getting lucky, and a lot of films don't. And that's, I think, part of why cult films are formed is, you know, they get lost, cinephiles find them and champion them, and the love spreads and, you know, the cult grows. I just love that sort of idea that movies can be rescued and even movies that had a tragic context can be saved and, and rediscovered and continue to live on. I, I, I just have always loved that idea. Yeah, it's something that people don't talk about enough is like the context. Like think about all the magnificent movies that you know weren't well received or, or you know didn't make any money. And as a modern audience, we have no idea why because we don't know the context. Like we don't know that you know Sorcerer came out a couple weeks after Star Wars. You know, we don't know that the thing came out at, right after you know E.T. and no one wanted that kind of alien. Like these movies that are considered like almost the best movies ever made now and falling on just you know receiving nothing because of the context in which they're received you know that that is a book like i think he has shades of that all the way through stuff but there's nothing like that that exists you know that source that tells you exactly what was going on at the time of each release i know uh, 80s all over the podcast tries to contextualize that a bit you know in terms of the ones they look at at least the the political climates and social events, but it, it's a pretty interesting thing to ponder, you know, you know, whether it's somebody, yeah, death or an incomplete film or, you know, just there's so many um, contextual reasons. Yeah. Lots of reasons why movies can get lost. Yeah. Um, and it happens all the time today, like something too serious or dark. Will come. I mean, uh, you know, if you have a film about gun violence coming out, you know, the day after, like, unfortunately today when we're recording this, another shooting, uh, you know, that film is going to be, it's not going to be something people probably want to see, you know, yeah. and it's, it's all very connected. Um, my, my last one, and I can't really call it a number one cause all of these movies are kind of number one, but I love this one and I was thrilled to get to rewatch it again. Uh, and that is uh, night or curse of the demon. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The Frightened Girl. Master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said, at 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month. Your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, 
evil supernatural creatures really do exist. Uh, directed by Jacques Tournier from 1957, one of those directors. Me and you have both uh, t- talked at length about our, you know, deep love. I really think he's one of the most talented uh, film, you know, pure cinema in quote marks uh, filmmakers of all time. And this is like, you know, I have a, just a huge love affair for Val Luton's work and especially the work they did together, he and Tournier. And I'm, I've got uh, three more on my DVR actually that I'm going to be watching over the when we're on break and this is the ultimate movie that should have been <laughs> like to me uh it has all the hallmarks of everything they had done together but of course val luden wasn't involved in this at all but i think had he been it might have might have been even that like one percent even better than it is even though i think it's a total masterpiece uh, dana andrews plays a um a psychologist uh who travels to london to attend a paranormal psychology symposium to uh, expose the devil cult leader julian carswell uh, who has, uh, because a friend of his, uh, a friend of uh, Dan Andrews' characters, has uh, been found dead, and we see we as the audience see the opening scene where um, a demon uh, manifests uh, after a curse has been put on him uh, and actually kills him, a giant, crazy-looking uh, demon, and he falls on some power lines and is electrocuted. Uh, anyway, he, you know, he definitely is a non-believer and believes in. Uh, you know the the world as a place that where everything can be explained. But Carswell, uh, who was played by a, an actor, more of a stage actor, uh, Niall McGuinness, is just one of those great, great, great performances as this guy. You just fully believe. Yeah, I guess it's in that like Anton Lavey kind of way. You believe in what he's doing. It's a weird movie. It really makes me kind of I don't know. As I'm watching it, I kind of believe in what they're doing that you they give you this you get this uh if if you hand it to a person uh which is like a little silk uh or maybe it's like a little maybe it's written on where it uh parchment or something yeah it's a parchment i guess is what they call right parchment paper and it's it's you know you're basically doomed i think you have like three days to live uh once you uh have it in your possession but (laughs) there's a great scene where he keeps trying to give it back to carswell carswell won't touch anything but but Uh, my favorite scene in this movie there's a scene at a kid's birthday party carswell's uh dresses up as a um uh as a goofy clown uh entertaining the kids but then they go on this long walk and kind of talk about the philosophy of their you know their different beliefs and it's just played so straight and so real and their conversation is just so interesting about the occult and then carswell shows him you know to try to make him believe and, and you know controls the weather and it, you know of course dan andrews still doesn't believe because that's kind of you know what a skeptic is but it's it's a really special movie it's it, it, it falls perfectly in line with the movies of luden but it also kind of has an extra gear that those movies probably due to budget never fully were allowed to explore um and then you know the controversial side of it which is uh you know after turnier very much in line with his luden work wanted to make it about your fear of you know what's in the dark the unexplained that thing you don't see but it's enough to imply that that's the movie he had finished but then afterwards the producer um did the opposite of what luden would have done because luden very much is on that same uh same idea and in fact the producer put in the giant sequences of an actual um demon and it's you know it's been very controversial a lot of critics you know believe that oh this would be a much better film without the demon and uh, I have to say 
that I personally have warmed to the demon, and I actually I love the movie as it is. I love the movie with the big demon thing. I, I kind of almost imagine that it's less that they're actually seeing a real demon as more on something mental happening, you know, yeah. that they're seeing in their mind. I really like seeing it. Maybe they could see it a little less to make it a little scarier, because uh, obviously it's you know the effects. But it, there's something else really amazing about it. Yeah, I think it's surprisingly effective for what it is, and surprisingly creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual demon that they came up with, and it's I have it in my head right now. Like that's yeah. Oh, it's very noticeable. It's I mean. very distinct, and it, it will never leave my brain. So on that level, for a movie like this to conjure a creature that I've not yet forgotten, uh, I think that's doing something right. But yeah, I see how. It could be a little better with less but i'd be curious to see like what that would have been like i'd love to see that this is one of those cases where it'd be great to know you know those two films i think it would probably feel more like the luden thing which uh often feels like um i think at the time you know would have been terrifying still but in the mod to a modern audience you probably sometimes feel there is a lack of that extra thing because we're so used to seeing the thing now so i do think this one maybe pays plays a little better to a modern audience of today because it does give you the whole the whole picture well, and it was part of, yeah sorry i was gonna say well and it was updated uh as drag me to hell basically mm-hmm. um so yeah, if you're a, a fan of that. of that you can see a lot of the a lot of the influence from this movie and i see some ninth gate too that's a ninth gate is another one that i think there's a lot of similarities to the tone of this film Interesting. um uh a, a couple of fun little and and perry might surprise people where Perry falls on the creature, which I'll read apart in a second, which was I, I was happy to see. Um, but there also uh, this is just a fun little fact that I didn't know about till today. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of uh, Kate Bush's 1985 song Hounds of Love. And it actually samples a line at the start of the movie, at the very start of the song. It samples the part where he says, it's in the trees, it's coming. And it's literally sampled. And then the entire song was... Uh, her inspiration of the song was after seeing this movie and taking wow. elements of, and putting with her life. So I've got a little uh, moment of that to play. She's in the trees. It's coming. When I was a child, running in the night, afraid of what I might be. Hiding in the dark, hiding in the street, and the world was for me. The hounds of yeah, let me get to this. Is just this is one of those ones that if you haven't seen and you're you're a noir fan and uh, also a horror fan or a Turnier fan, this is an absolute gem of a movie. Just uh, you'll have no buyer's remorse whatsoever on this one. Um, let me see if I can find it. Okay, I think I've found the right part. Val Luden was known for not showing brutal acts of proof of the supernatural. He left much of the viewers to the viewers' imagination. When Trenier directed Night of the Demon, he wanted viewers to argue over whether they truly are supernatural occurrences in the picture. When, much to both Trenier's and Bennett's chagrin, producer Chester inserted scenes in which the gigantic fiery demon flies out of the woods and destroys Harrington and Carswell, he, of course, changed the picture. There has been enormous controversy about the inclusion of the demon, with critics almost invariably coming out against it in favor of subtlety. Bennett believes its presence took a major movie down to the level of cheap horror crap. Uh, Chester added the monster to bring in the kitty crowd. The demon was the highlight of the promotion campaign, which is odd since the picture was given an X rating in Britain, so only those 16 and older could see it. In the best horror movie book and illustrated history of the horror film, uh, Carlos Clarence complains about the presence of the demon, yet it is the demon that graces the book's cover. So I believe most critics dislike the demon for no other reason than they know it was studio-imposed. 
except for a shot where the demon looks like King Kong in drag, <laughs> riding an invisible bicycle. I think the demon is terrific. <laughs> I'm in favor of this well vile put. creature, as big as a house and ugly as sin, that rips Carswell to shreds with its claws and tosses him to the ground in disdain. Val Luden's theory was to not show what takes place in the dark because it can never be more terrifying than what the viewer can imagine. But this demon is more terrifying than anything imaginable. It's the scariest monster in film history as far as I'm concerned, no matter what other thinks it's it's ludicrous. As to complaint that the demon's presence reveals too much, I can't buy it. This demon is but one creature from the underworld, just one small part of the world of diabolism or diabolism. I think that's fantastic. It's like it's fun. He's he's like arguing with other critics. He's like uh, he's like making fun of the creature, but also saying it scared the hell out of him. I mean, that's that's what film criticism should be. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I, I this is a great continuation. If you have seen the Luton films that Turner and, and Luton did together, you can easily jump into this movie and it feels uh, of a similar... I mean, outside of obviously the the showing the creature or not, but it's it's psychological, it's horror, it's moody, it has all the style of Turner, and so it feels like it's of the same series of films, basically. Yeah, and, the, and uh, there's nothing that's... I don't know why you, we go through phases, but I guess I've just watched so much modern horror in these last few years doing um, Shockwaves that there's been nothing I've enjoyed more in my last like three years than rediscovering the work of Luden and, and kind of you know reading more about it and just really looking at what he did in that time period. And on that front, you know, the podcast that you... Uh, put me onto the secret history of Hollywood is my favorite other discovery of the year. Like honestly, next to movies, that has been my most enjoyable thing. Uh, listening to these first four episodes as he kind of recounts, you know, very in a very story storybook way and dr- dr- dramatically realized way, uh, you know, the the early childhood of Val Luton through to each of these key movies that he was responsible for. If you haven't heard it they are just absolutely terrific. And the last one, I'm not kidding. I was in the car. I pulled into work. It was about the kind of how the um, George... Um, George most, Sanders and his George brother. George Sanders' brother, yeah, because I didn't know it was his brother all these years. And it, it just how it just talks about how he kind of ended up. And I was literally in my car like with in tears. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, when yeah. was the last time I was driving to work and listening to a podcast and moved to tears about someone... Uh, which is one of my favorites, so which I also talked about on the New York episode, The Seventh Victim. Yeah. So it does tie in, um, which is one of my favorites. Uh, it, it's really terrific, and that guy, you know, go subscribe. Uh, you know, he he can only probably pump them out like once every five weeks or so because there's so much production in them. But um, man, it is worth your time. Yeah, definitely. If you're a fan of, you must remember this. Uh, Secret History of Hollywood is is a must. It's incredible. Um, I'm so glad you, you've become such a fan of it. It's really wonderful stuff. Well, I think you turned me on at the perfect moment because I was just also going through my Val Luton. Like I just, I was right in the middle of my highest kind of interest in Luton. So the timing of that, it was pretty remarkable, you know, and I haven't heard his other ones. So after this, I'll, I'm sure I'll start going through everything else. Yeah. The, the Warner brothers one is it's the emotional impact it had on me. I wasn't moved to tears, but I was, I was quite devastated by some of the events that come out, especially over the course of this lengthy story of the history of Warner Brothers Studios. Anyway, 
great movie almost was on my list and when we talked you had said that you were thinking of putting on so I, I went with something else but I love this movie and I think it was one that I discovered through the book but also through one of my co-workers at Laser Blazer and an old guy that used to come into the store all the time that was a huge fan of it I had, I had read about it in the book and I was like I don't know this looks kind of corny and then I rented the Laser Disc uh, you know 2000 2001 and watched it and I was like wow that's that's a great old horror movie. One of my favorite, you know, classic horror films right up there. It doesn't feel cheesy. Like, no. the die. that's the thing. I think it looks like sometimes those kind of movies from that period, uh, can, <clears throat> when they, with the dialogue parts can really kill the movie, you know, because they're just talking about it in such an antiquated way. And this movie somehow makes, those are some of the best parts are the characters actually in dialogue about ideas, which is rare. Yeah. So also it's worth noting, and I, I didn't write down his name, but the screenwriter uh, wrote, you know, uh, some of Hitchcock's best films, like Foreign Correspondence, this, uh, you know, m- multiple of his scripts. So it, it makes a lot of sense why it feels so kind of alive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so on to my number one, it's not by any means obscure, really. Um, it's Phantom of the Paradise from 1974, Brian De Palma's movie. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece. To glitter and beyond the story of a sound the man who created it the girl who sang it the monster who stole it and the phantom who haunts the paradise the ultimate rock palace and it's about as cult as cult movies get. I, I mean, uh, yeah, another one that totally made it clear to me, like, the difference between your average everyday movie and a cult movie. And, you know, a cult movie could certainly be defined by a new rock opera take on the Phantom of the Opera story wherein the story of Faust is told through the characters and also through the cantata that the main character is writing. Yeah, it's it's really something else. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to I have two things to read from Perry. I'm going to lead off with this one cuz it kind of sets the stage a little. He says It's appropriate that Phantom begins with Rod Serling-like narration. Most episodes on Serling's classic television anthology, The Twilight Zone, were about characters who lose their identity. In Phantom, Winslow Leach becomes the symbol of all struggling young songwriters whose music, their identity, is stolen by big-shot record producers and musicians. Winslow, in fact, represents... All young artists, filmmakers included, who are used and discarded without the world ever knowing they existed. Once one signs a contract with a record company or a movie studio, it it may as well be with the devil. Once freedom is lost, notice the sad bird image, our symbol for independence, at the end of the film, and one's personal integrity is compromised. The person that was is no more. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a movie that's about trying to create something truly artistic and unique 
and having it compromised and, and wanting to get it out to people and, and then ending up having to sign on with, um, in this case, a, a devil record producer who steals your music and, and uses you up and throws you away. That producer is played by Paul Williams, who did the music for the film, which is incredible. Um, this is a movie that, kind of like Mean Streets, it took me a couple viewings and has since become like one of my favorite films ever. Mm. Uh, but the first time I saw it, I think I think my knee jerk was like, "Oh, this is kind of like Rocky Horror, which is a cult movie I'm just not really a fan of yet. Um, maybe someday it'll, I'll come around to it." But there's something about that one and uh, the certain musical nature of uh, it, there's a theatrical quality to the musical nature of this movie that usually turns me off. It reminds me of all the sort of pretentious guys and gals that were in the theater group in my high school that, you know, would run around the school with their Les Mis t-shirts talking about how... And I just, you know, that's just my own thing. I just didn't connect to that kind of musical. The musical where you know, people are telling the story through song is, I, I much prefer musicals that have incidental, well, we could talk about it at some point when we get to the Fred and Ginger. Like Umbrellas of Ch- Cherbourg. That kind of stuff, like or yeah, Fred yeah. and Ginger, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's it's much more my bag than the character singing. I, I don't know. Sometimes it just doesn't, it rubs me the wrong way. Well, I think a big difference in Phantom versus uh, Rocky, even though Rocky obviously has its huge cult, uh, is that De Palma is the hell of a director that's the difference he he brings a totally unique idiosyncratic weird approach to that movie well another i mean on top of that then you have paul williams who is one of the greatest songwriters to ever live yeah and a guy who's so adept at musical stylings that he can create and copy and emulate the songwriting styles of you know 50s and 60s do not do wop um yeah a little bit of that i guess uh, in the Juicy Fruits who, you know, have the opening song I still really love from the Juicy Fruits. We'll remember you forever, Through the sacrifice you made We can't believe the price you paid For I love their. They have a Beach Boys period where he's emulate. He's written songs that emulate that vibe, and then you have the cantata itself, which is Winslow Leach's passion project, which is Faust, and it's you know very heady and it's this total rock opera thing. And the movie is commenting on all that stuff, and it's also got characters like Beef, played by Garrett Graham, who is. 
this glam rock, you know, I guess basically everything that's wrong with rock for some people at the time, you know, just a very big personality, again, very theatrical and not about the artistic craft of songwriting, but about showmanship uh, above and beyond all things and, and some ugly aesthetic kind of stuff that, that sort of takes away from the art and the purity of the art of, of making good music. And I think Danny feels like the movie has lost a little bit of its bite or, or it, it's less impactful because we've seen, at least at the time of the writing of this uh, book, we've seen people like Alice Cooper and things that people from that period w- saw as, not, I don't know if, the, I can't get a vibe if it was like blasphemous to them, but it, you know, Kiss and Alice Cooper and that sort of metal feels kind of ridiculous and and bigger than life in a way that you know De Palma was trying to make fun of something by making it so ridiculous that it couldn't ever come true and and Danny's point is that it has come through and then some uh so that takes something away from the movie I I don't totally agree with that as much now I I feel like it's still really relevant and this idea of trying to be an artist and be commercially successful and the way that that you have to go about doing that and how it can really lead to a, a selling of one soul um, is it still holds true but the music is so good and it's very stylish and it obviously has the loose structure of a Phantom of the Opera type thing where Winslow Leach's character is brutally scarred by this record making machine and he has to wear this incredibly cool mask and this little chess piece that uh, adjusts his voice, which De Palma definitely noticed that George Lucas had sort of stolen for Darth Vader in Star Wars, and I think Lucas freely admitted it. So th- there's just a lot of stylistic things about it, and I just love Paul Williams' songwriting. I'm, I'm a fan of his work for The Carpenters, but I'm also just a fan of his poetic songwriting abilities in general. And, and uh, the Muppets. And the, and the Muppets. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Like, yeah. amazing when you think of it. But also, uh, without this movie, we don't get Jessica Harper and Suspiria. Oh, is that right? This, this is where he saw uh, Argento saw this. That's and amazing. Cast her based on this, and she's amazing in this. And she's she, really she, her presence is like just yeah, her eyes and her like I don't want to say blankness, but there's a certain blankness that I think we project onto as well because uh, just that's movies. That's uh, and she's incredible at that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I just think she's one of those cult actresses that is part of the alchemy that makes a movie like this or Suspiria so distinct uh, in her look and her performance and her voice. I mean, she's she's incredible. I adore. Jessica Harper. So, yeah. Um, there's one more bit that Danny had about this one. What did he say? He says, okay, uh, I first saw Phantom in 1974 at a nearly empty Hollywood theater. I love the picture. I should have been the target viewer. I cheered young, non-commercial filmmakers. I shared De Palma's obvious affection for the horror genre, and it helped. I knew he was capable of of making good horror films as Sisters 1973 had shown. I lamented that the upbeat rock and roll of the 50s and 60s had evolved into the mean-spirited, theatrical glitter rock of Alice Cooper, Mott the Hoople, and the Rolling Stones of the 70s. I was aware that the film is flawed. It's terribly paced. It's sloppy and has a trite terribly confused ending but i was excited by the visual bravura amazing vitality humor one in joke uh philbin is named after mary philbin who played opposite lon cheney in the 1925 silent phantom of the opera and innovation and i think all that stuff is true de palma's definitely showing himself to be the filmmaker that he would become and was at the time and yeah, the the more I watch it, the more the fabled aspect of it uh, sort of takes me away and I'm able to forgive 
any inconsistencies with story and, and what have you. It just becomes this incredible fable that seems kind of timeless. There will always be a struggle between commerce and art, I think, because you know people have to make a living and uh it's just one of those things so i think it's a, a kind of a timeless message in some way and again the music is so good i could listen to just about any song on the soundtrack and i would be you know incredibly happy it's just i mean or moved or whatever i mean it's it's just all such great music did um do you remember cuz i can't recall i loved the de palma documentary that came out last year do you recall him in that talking much about phantom i don't recall him talking about phantom i don't think they touched on it too much i feel like they went through everything so they must have touched on it yeah but um, i wish they had a outtakes like of like going in depth on even more than I could think, fit in the doc i think the blu-ray does and i don't have the blu-ray yet so i need to need to do yeah. that but i found a clip from scream factory that is part of an interview that they did with him for for the blu-ray which is great i have a very definite way of shooting things and when i write a scene or or have an idea for a movie i have a very direct important place for the camera to be or a way to structure the series of images and uh, I think about it quite a lot. You know, as I've said many times before, the whole idea of, you know, covering something is like an anathema to me. You, you know, anybody can set up, you know, medium shots, close-ups, and, you know, cover whatever the actors are moving or saying. I constantly try to look at the location, figure out how to dramatize and visualize what is in the script. and. Uh, try to find a way that you integrate what you're trying to convey with the visuals in a unique way. That was very much happening in Phantom, and I've, I've done it through all my movies, basically. It's a great Screen Factory disc. Arrow also did a Blu-ray of Phantom. Thankfully, it's a much-beloved film, so it's readily available digitally and in great uh, special editions. But yeah, so I've got a little clip of De Palma talking about it, but I haven't heard him talk about it enough, and I, I kind of mm. want to hear more uh, from him on that topic. So, anyway. well, that is our epic cult movies two uh, wrap. It is our wrap to season two of the Pure Cinema podcast, which now has spanned pretty much almost a year. It seems uh, we must be closing in on a year of existence, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, without because without us uh, firming up exactly when there'll be a season three, uh, there will be a season three. Uh, but I would say in the meantime, this is the I would be looking keep an ear out for bonus episodes that we might feel like dropping in between because I'm sure we will because we can't stay away. Uh, Patreons, please, if you love what we do, uh, it is the you know ultimate to have you guys as Patreon supporters, uh, and it just keeps us you know hungry and excited to do more. So we'll be definitely dropping some more stuff in there, uh, and we'll also be uh, figuring out uh, in- new info for the season three as it comes. Yeah, we've got ideas that we're excited about for the third season. You had a great uh, idea for how we're going to start it off. And we have some other episodes that we've been that have been percolating. We've been sitting on, and I, I, I'm excited about it. I mean, there's just no end to the amount of cinema that we want to get through. So uh, it's it's going to be fun. 
And unlike some shows, our audience seems to be the rare audience that actually uh, sometimes feels relieved when we take a break because they're like, oh, my God, that's great because I have this list of like 100 movies you just gave me to watch before you guys start up again. So I feel the same way. I also like the main re- the main excitement of a break is like, oh, good, I'm just going to watch movies now, <laughs> you know, and then get my uh, fuel back. But, yeah, no, we're excited and we'll be we'll be back soon. And uh, all I can say is uh, let's have some bents in Arizona. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing. I may sunshine down, but I see only one. When I think I'm over you, I find I've just begun. The years move faster than the days. There's more in the light. Those desert skies, your cool touch in the night. Thanks to Arizona, blue warm wind through your hair. My body flies, the galaxies, my heart longs to be there. Thanks to Arizona, the same stars in the sky, but they seem so much kinder when we watch them, you and I. Early today.